Hello and welcome to the Total Quidditch podcast, a place where we talk to the people who make Quidditch what it is and give them an opportunity to share their stories and experiences of the sport. I'm Fraser and I'll be your host. After spoiling you with two guests per episode, the first two of this series, we just have the one for you for episode 23, but certainly a great guest to have on the podcast with us uh, today. For first time since series one, we're heading back down to Australia to talk to one of their leading community members. Not only is he a star beater that's played for the Drop Bears three times, including in the World Champion 2016 team, he is also the NGB president of Quidditch Australia and a great person to talk all things Quidditch with. Our second Luke in a row, Luke Derrick, welcome to the pod. Hello. Sorry I'm not two people separated into one, but I will <laughs> do my best to fill the same amount of time and information. <laughs> exactly. Like the, the same amount of content, but uh, yeah. Look, <laughs> we, can we can try. We can try. Fantastic, fantastic. How how are you? And sort of how how's life these days? Uh good. We're in this is my eighth week of lockdown. Um, and it doesn't look like it's gonna be ending very soon. Uh so we haven't had Quidditch in a while, but you know. Yeah, we also gotta all just gotta take our punches and the next World Cup is gonna be very, very, very interesting. Um, depending on who's retired and who's stuck around and who's stayed fit and who hasn't, so <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, not not the, the best of situations right now. So we, we were just talking off air beforehand how strange things are in the world where I know the UK and the US have thousands and thousands of COVID cases, yet Australia's like, right, we've got a few hundred or whatever. Right, full lockdown. That's it. Yeah, so. it was like Australia was in like, we got to like 100 and then it was like full lockdown. New Zealand's like one case, full lockdown. Um <laughs> To be fair, I think if you're going to go into full lockdowns, you need to do it immediately because it makes it shorter times. But look, we can get into the politics of COVID-19 lockdowns at some other point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, true, true. We can uh, talk about better subjects than COVID right now. Um, Oh, yeah. I imagine this is a pretty good distraction for you during uh, all the the quarantine isolation. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's pretty funny when you like talk to friends for like the sixth time in quarantine. They're like, "What have you been up to?" It's like I have literally done nothing else other than what I told you last time, just again and <laughs> again. When you're at uni and you're working, and it's like, "Oh, the next assignment and the next class to teach," and cool, like. True, true. Fantastic. Right, should we should we get get into it? Let's go for it. Why not? Fantastic. Um, I'm gonna take it right back to the beginning of your time with Quidditch. Um. Mm-hmm. Which is not not too long ago, of course. Um, like ten years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, how how did you get into Quidditch? Kind of, what kind of sporting background did you have before you joined the sport? Uh so I played soccer. I was playing soccer at the time um, for like a Sydney University team, but I've been playing soccer since I was four. So it was about seventeen, eighteen years of soccer. Um, I'd had about two or three years of basketball and two or three years of rugby pre- previously, but like I'd stopped playing those sports. Um, so I'd sort of been involved in team sports my whole life. Uh, but then Quidditch, I had a few friends who played Quidditch. And then I remember like at a bar one time, one of the school bars, one of my friends being like, I tried it and it was really fun and you would really enjoy it. Just like in one of his like 
drunken talks with me and I was like all right whatever no big deal but then one of my other friends who I was like really close with was actually like the secretary of the society or something like that and he was like we actually need people for nationals so me and my partner were both recruited um to like come to nationals so my first game of Quidditch ever was at Australian the second Australian nationals in 2012 (laughs) uh so that was a very interesting time. We rocked up with yellow shirts because um, we didn't realize that wasn't okay at that point. Um, so we instantly broke a whole number of rules. None of us knew what the rules were back then. Um, and we ended up coming like fifth. So like out of like 10 teams, eight or 10 teams. So like we weren't unhappy with that, but it was it was a very weird experience to be playing Quidditch for the first time in that sort of setting. Okay, <laughs> so it's quite a bizarre, bizarre sort of beginning to yeah to joining Quidditch, I guess, and uh, yeah, I guess well, you mentioned you played soccer or football for quite a long time, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting to see how like especially even in the UK, there's lots of like football players who join Quidditch, and yeah, kind of their appreciation of space and movement and just general athleticism transfers across very well to Quidditch. Um, yeah, I think yeah. like the the like uh, foot movement in terms of like running around is quite good, um, and like general overall fitness, I guess as well. Um, in terms of that, like sprint at times, um, sort of like walk pace at times. In terms of playing offense and defense in Quidditch, you get that a lot. Um, but like it's like I think there are definitely other sports that are more applicable. Like oh, of <laughs> I, I'm, I'm like jealous of the people who grew up playing like NFL or like basketball their whole lives, and I'm like, ah, yes, a handball sport. This would yeah. have been very useful <laughs> moving forward. Or like you hear the um the number of like um beaters that are softball or baseball backgrounds in America. You're like, ah, yeah, I see how you can throw really hard and really fast, really accurately. It's like you've been practicing <laughs> this for 18 years, you know. Um, so I'm jealous of that, but it, it set me up in a good way enough. Um, so yeah, I'm not the most unhappy, I guess. Yeah, for sure. No, I totally relate to that. Cause I remember back when I was eight, I used to play basketball, um, and I played football at the time and I had this kind of crossroads moment where it's like, oh, do you continue with the basketball or do you go and play football? And obviously football being massive in the UK. And I think like they both clashed. I was like, oh, I'll go play football. And then since I started playing Quidditch, like, made the wrong mistake. <laughs> it's a bad yeah. choice. And it's like, uh, there's only so many times I can kick the ball and it's very inaccurate. And you'll score, like, one kick goal every, like, five years. <laughs> um, so it's just, we wish we played basketball. I think that is. The... <laughs> yeah. I've got one one kick goal in my career. Um, and it's still one of my favorite goals. But, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bat my football skills at all. Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot harder. It is fun kicking the ball around the pitch now, now that there's unlimited kicks. But there always yeah. was in the keeper zone, so... <laughs> true, true. <laughs> but yeah, that sounds like quite an intense way to uh, start playing Quidditch, sort of dropping yourself straight into nationals like that. And, uh, I guess, like, it probably sounds like quite a positive experience, sort of, the way you had it finishing fifth out of ten there. If you kind of turned up and lost every single game and finish last like oh okay this is really weird right well, I, I played Quidditch once that's it but I guess it kind of gave you enough sort of to go oh this is really fun but oh there are people who are good at this 
and maybe I could be one of those people one day. Yeah, it was it was a very interesting time because the next year in Usage Quidditch was an, an adventure in perseverance because like that that summer holidays between nationals and the sort of start of our next year, I was like one of the only people who like messaged being like, hey, are we doing this? Like, is Quidditch becoming a thing? Because I like really enjoyed myself. Um, and I was like, let's do this. Like, let's let's keep playing. And like, I, I got like a very limited response. And then we didn't really get that many people intake wise. Um, and so we ended up having like, I want to say like three people regularly at training, including wow. myself. Like, and and that was two trainings a week no matter what like we trained in the rain we trained like in the worst weather and we were always there and we always went to the pub afterwards and i think that like that built this regularity in terms of everything like it was it was really hard like rocking up to training and 10 people had said they'd come and like one person's there like throwing a ball with me for two hours but i think that sort of was good enough and it sort of kept the society moving forward. So the next year we had a great intake. We had like 10 or 15 keen people for a little bit. Um, and it slowly boiled down, but like for the most part. And so that ultimately, yeah, that, that love of the sport that I got at nationals helped maintain the society sort of in a larger form. Cause I was one of the main people who was like, yeah, let's do this sort of moving forward, which yeah. It's it was a very weird time jumping straight into nationals, but I think winning a few games was good. But I think that was mostly due to our like the average athleticism on the team. Like we had a few rugby players, we had a few sort of nimble soccer players to play beater who were quite quick and fast. Um, I played keeper back then because um, I was one of the bigger players on the team, and that is where you naturally got put. Um, so yeah, it was. I think it's very different starting the sport now compared to then. Like back then, you could just sort of like pick up the ball, run forward, dodge a lucky beat, and then just score. Like against like good teams as well. Like that was not like a crazy thing to hear because no one was really that good at the sport. Like they were good players, but like when you're talking good players, you're being like, oh, he can like dodge one tackle good player you know what i mean um that person can run in a straight line very fast yeah and put it for like, a hoop <laughs> that beater is really good because they can throw a ball in a straight line like <laughs> the level of excellence was so low that when you came into the sport it wasn't it was achievable you could you could see getting there yeah but like now i think entering the sport and like as a beater, you come in and you're like, oh, who's the best player? It's like Max Havlin. And you're just like, Jesus Christ, like I'm never going to get there. <laughs> it's it's like so, like the, differ the difference is so much. And if you come into a first tournament with a completely new team, you're probably going to lose every game. That's just a fact of life. Um, yeah, true. <laughs> so Certainly more un unforgiving than it used to be. Way, way more unforgiving. So I'm I'm very grateful to the people who come in, lose every game and stick around because they were no they're no worse than i was when i was at my first tournament or my team was or, or any of us older players we just had less of a challenge at that point yeah very true very true so kind of comparing and contrasting as we've just kind of done there between 
those early days sort of playing uh, at UCID and then I guess nowadays and well, well at least pre-COVID nowadays. Um, so do, do you miss those early days or do you prefer what Quidditch has evolved to um, at this point? Ah, man, that's that's a challenging thing because I think there was this sort of excitement that was around Quidditch when we were all building it up and, and creating this thing. And I think moving forward now, like there's a lot more to the reality of the situation in terms of like when you're this fledgling league, people are like, oh, Quidditch, what is that? It sounds fun. And you're not really like, all you're trying to do is bring more people in right? That is that is the next step in legitimizing your sport, is just getting more teams. But then once you get those teams, you start to get to really complicated levels of legitimizing your sport. You get to how do we become an official sport as per our country? How does Quidditch become an official sport as per the world? How do we deal with really complicated scandals where people have said this to this person in Facebook and you start dealing with these like really complicated things. And it's like, how do you deal with um, like, do we want to start offering like prize money for winning things? But then that is this whole other thing. And it's like, if you start offering prize money, then you have to have things like, um, like drug policies and all this other crap. And it's just like, it, it sort of spirals away from you in this really like, let's become a legitimate sport. And you're sort of just like on the snowball rolling down a hill. And all of a sudden you're like, oh crap, I have 50 million things to deal with for this to even, as opposed to just like, hey, want to come join my sport? We throw a ball in a hoop. Like there was that nostalgic, like fun child feeling to that. Um, and now... I think all the places around the world are dealing with this. Are we leg are we a legitimate sport or are we fun? And it's this whole throw up of do we even bother with Quidditch? Because like the Quidditch name thing is a whole issue. And then like, yeah, I, I like where the sport is now, especially like coming out of MLQ. Like it's, it's like watching that is so fun. Um, but I think there is this fun, um, intimate nature of what Quidditch used to be that I think you will never get back to because it's only ever happens with new sports when you're like one of the trailblazers in terms of like starting the sport up, you know? Okay. So I think the, the, the good way of summarizing that is back then it was a simpler time. Simpler time, 100%. Pure, pure joy, pure fun. Whereas now, obviously, with your sort of roles, responsibility and kind of the way you've seen the sport evolve, it's sort of, well, I guess these days, well, Quidditch is kind of at this crossroads, isn't it? Where we're still kind of shaking off that, I guess, the whimsy of those opening years and, yeah, try to be a bit more serious about ourselves. Yeah, it's like, are we a Harry Potter thing? Are we a separate Harry Potter thing? Like, we need to use that Harry Potter thing because it gets us a lot of new players but we also don't want to be pretending like we're like cosplaying Harry Potter. Like that's not what we're doing. So we're trying to like use the benefits of Harry Potter and it's, it just gets so complicated and so much crap goes on behind the scenes. It's just like, let's just play the sport. Like it's so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> let's just throw bludges at each other. Like it's, it's so much more fun. True. True. That's definitely what I, I stick around <laughs> for. It's the, the pure joy of just playing Quidditch and, 
yeah, the throwing the balls, running around. That's what what yeah, excites me most. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, obviously with um, the University of Sydney, uh, the Sydney Unspeakables, uh, you got a few more members together. And then by 2014, I believe, um, mm-hmm. you went to the USQ World Cup 7, um, what used to be the World Cup anyway, um, over in the US. So what was it like playing in this tournament as one of the a small selection of international teams? And what did you gain out of the experience? So we qualified in 2014, but we actually went to the 2015 one. Is that right? No, that's wrong. You're right. You're, yeah. you're, you're, you're accurate. Sorry, that's my bad. Um, yes. <laughs> I was like, I feel like, no. Um, so we, we qualified in 2013 and it was at that point in Australia, Quidditch was still like wrapping and not taking to the ground. And I remember like, but, but Melbourne was playing tackle back down in Melbourne, but for nationals, they were playing rap. So I remember the two Melbourne teams doing this like demonstration of how tackle worked. And it was just brutal. And we were all sitting there being like, oh, okay, this is what the sport is. And then we qualified and realized that if we're going to go to America, we have to play that tackle. And I think that was such a difference coming in. And it was it was an absolutely amazing experience. Like, we all stayed together. We Like, the Myrtle Beach was such a nice location. We played, like, Beach Quidditch. I think it was with, like, Michigan or Minnesota on, like, the Friday to, like, have some fun. Uh, we like made up all these rules and they just like joined in. Um, so everyone was super welcoming and super nice. Um, but getting into the tournament, it was like, we were like, let's just win one game. Like, let's really try. And look, RPI was almost snitch range. I think we were down by like 40 quaffle points um, back when off-pitch sneak, um, off pitch seeking was still a thing. Um, but I think the tackling was a big like step up. And that really, by the second or third game, we were really getting into it a lot more. Um, but the first game was just such a shock um, against McGill, I think it was. Um, and we were just like, oh, crap. Like, this is like a whole nother level. Um, but I think it was a whole nother level in terms of the sport as well, you know? There was pitch markings and there were, like, map layouts of the pitch and there were... Um, people like selling merchandise and stuff. And this was stuff we'd never experienced in Quidditch, in, in Australian Quidditch. So it was a step up in play. It was a step up in organization. It was just a whole nother world almost seeing what a few more years could do and a few more hundred players could do for a sport. Okay, so pretty eye-opening of across yes. that whole experience. <laughs> So not just in terms of the gameplay and the kind of the physicality that a lot of US teams play with, but yeah, also just the general organization. And I, I know the Americans really pride themselves on running great events. So to see an example of that, yeah, it must have been, yeah, really inspiring. Yeah. And then we sat down with like seeing the crowd for the finals. Like you've got like people like four or five deep circling the pitch and you're like this many people want to watch quidditch holy crap like <laughs> like in, in australia at that point like you're watching a fight like i didn't even stay for the final of 20 of the first quaffle i went to like it's because a lot of people like when they when they're playing a tournament they get tired and they're like i'm not in the final i'm not in the semi screw it i don't care but like for pe- that many people to stay and watch a final showed how many people really cared about the sport 
and really were like, no, this is going to be a good final. I want to watch this because I enjoy watching the sport, you know? And so that as well was just so great to see. It's like this sport is expanding. People want to watch the sport. Let's go take this organization, this skill level, this enthusiasm back to Australia and see what we can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sounds sounds great overall. It's just quite weird looking back how obviously it was the World Cup at the time. So obviously you guys could attend as part of the world. And uh, just kind of, because obviously you have the World Cup, like the, the, the national teams, but we don't have like a club equivalent. And I was talking to Albert in one of our earlier episodes um, about how after winning EQC, he was just like, right, cool. Can we, can we fly to the US now? Can we go and play those guys is like the fact that that opportunity doesn't exist at the moment is is quite sad in many ways what the best club sides could also do against each other yeah um i've always wondered what that would look like um but like realistically let's all be honest america has the top 18 at least to 20 clubs minimum um, and that has that's that's nothing against anyone else. Like the way I, the way I talk to Australian people about it is, like, think about like the percentage of our like how many of our like the the population of Australia are top Quidditch players. Like, what is that percent? And then move that percent over to America, and then figure out how many players that is. And that's how many players they have at that level, because that's mm. the truth. You know, like. People always like the American podcasters always say that you could like you could send like a USA A B C D team to World Cup, and they would have very good chances coming first, second, third, fourth. And I agree. Like mm. they their talent is through the roof, top to bottom, amazing. Right. So could our club teams hang with theirs when like our best twenty one players are separated over like nine clubs? I don't know, maybe like the first line, maybe, but like by the time it comes to the second line, probably not. Mm. Like if you're taking like the best clubs in America versus like the best clubs in Europe and the best clubs in Australia, like America's going to win. That's just a fact of life. Yeah. (laughs) Sad, but true. Sad, but true. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, um, World Cup 7 wasn't the only time that you've played Quidditch over in the US. Um, You also played a... Uh, Southwest Fantasy in 2015, uh, which we also talk about off air. Um, and, uh, yeah, from the sounds, it sounds like a really interesting time. So what did you get out of that experience over in Texas? And yeah, how was yeah, it? <laughs> that, was, that was a wild time. So it was like my my dad's Welsh. So we were going to my cousin's wedding in Wales. And I was like, oh, that's actually in the middle of the year. That I'm flying through LA anyway. Like, why don't I just see if there's some fantasy tournaments a week before the wedding? Um, And Southwest Fantasy was two weeks before the wedding and Northeast Fantasy was the weekend before the wedding. So I was like, that's great. I can go do Southwest, go do Northeast. But Northeast ended up getting cancelled. So I just went to Southwest. And I like didn't really know what I was staying or whatever. And then like a few weeks out, it was like a month or two out. I messaged Cody Marshall. Cause I'd met him once at 2014 global games. I was like, Hey man, I'm coming over for Southwest fantasy. I know you probably don't know who I am. Um, 
is Lone Star like having a practice I can watch? Because at that point I was like, I'm in America. I just want to like see some good teams play, like gain some experience. And Cody messages back and he's like, yeah, man, like come stay at my house. Come hang out with us. We're not really practicing, but you can like just like hang out with us the whole time. And I was like, "Uh, all right. So I ended up like I arrived in Texas. Cody Marshall is standing there with this like cardboard sign he's drawn. (laughs) That says my name on it. And as as I walk down, he's like really excitedly gives me a hug. And he's like, want to go get drunk? And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, $1 margaritas, $2 doubles, let's go. And I get like <laughs> shoved in a car with like, it was like Eric Wilroth, Stevie Bell. And then there was someone else. I think it was Bo, who was one of their other housemates at the time. And we go and get drunk with like Matthew Gregoire and Sarah Holub and like, the the old Lone Star core was like when Drew was still there and stuff. And that was just such a crazy experience. And then like we come back to Cody's house like drunk and we're like playing board games till like 2 a.m. <laughs> in the morning and then we crash out. And then three days later, Harry Greenhouse shows up and he's crashing on Cody's other couch. And this is all <laughs> before the tournament. So like we get to the tournament, absolutely great. I get my shoulder completely screwed over i like this isn't like the last game of the first day we were playing really well we'd we'd gone undefeated um and then i like dived on a ball and a guy the other beater like tripped over one of my legs and fell on top of me and it basically shoved my shoulder out of its socket but the muscles like tightened so much it kept them in so basically this meant that like every muscle from like here up here was strained instant like at the same time so like my shoulder never popped out but i could not do anything with my arm so i was in a sling for the rest of that tournament and couldn't play but that was just a wild wild time like that whole experience and then we played um scatterball um which was a great time and like it was just so good to see all these players that i'd like met or i'd heard of actually playing um and then I got to hang out with Lone Star afterwards. Stevie like broke his jaw during the like it was either the final or the semi-final. Um, so he was like drinking smoothies for us through a straw the rest of the time. <laughs> we went out to barbecue. It was just an absolutely wild ride. And like anytime anyone's like, I don't know about America, I'm like, Austin's great. Go to Austin. People are great there. Like that's that town is an absolute wild ride. Anyone in Quidditch in America is great. I'm a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it certainly sounds like a wild ride, and I can definitely back that Austin is a phenomenal city. Like, I, I recommend it to anyone and everyone that you should go there, and especially if you, especially if you're in Quidditch, just uh yeah, enjoy that city for what it is. And, um, yeah. So I, I'm curious about the shoulder there. Did you have to go to the wedding in a sling? No, it was like it magically healed. It basically it took like because the wedding was two weeks away from that, so basically I got to take the sling off after a few days, um, because like my muscles were slowly loosening up. But it was at the stage where like on the Monday I couldn't put a shirt on myself, like I I literally could not ex- move my arm further than this. So someone had to like pull my arm up. And like, so I could like put a t-shirt on. It was, it was not a fun time. And the worst thing was like, after, after the injury, like an hour afterwards, I was like, 
this is fine. This is like no big deal. Like I'm not in any pain. It's <laughs> like, you know, when you go to the gym and you finish the gym and you're feeling great and you're like, you're like, you've worked your ass off. You're so like pumped, but you're feeling really good. It's only till the day after that, where you're like, I am so sore. Yeah. everything i did it was exactly like that it was like my arm was great that night i slept fine the next morning i like could not move my arm in any way shape or form on the sunday and i was like <laughs> how did it get so bad overnight but i was just like the muscles hadn't like properly like clicked into place and they were just so strained and so bruised that i just couldn't do anything it was so sad that team was so much fun i had like ah, oh, who was on that team becca dupont was on that team she was like our leading goal scorer at the time um sean townsend was on that team who's currently playing for league city legends kevin tran was on that team that that team was so much fun um and it was molly lensing and kedzie teller were like uh the um the sort of gms of the team it was great i still have the jersey so that was like one of the best experiences i've ever had with quidditch it was so much fun yeah for sure for sure the good job the shoulder healed otherwise you had a an awkward uh few conversations at the wedding how'd you do that oh quidditch oh Uh, has anyone else like gone to the doctor with a quidditch (laughs) injury and said any other sport like like i'm all for like quidditch representation like i'm not ashamed just sometimes you can't be bothered like you're you're just (laughs) like just just give me my meds and let me go like i don't want to explain quidditch to you i'm tired (laughs) yeah sometimes you're just like oh i i fell over or i was playing soccer or like it's like I just, and they're just like, okay, instead of that like ten minute conversation where you get this like half-hearted, I'm laughing at you, I'm laughing with you sort of yeah. conversation that <laughs> yeah. happens a lot. I know exactly what you mean. And you're just like, it's nine p.m. I'm exhausted. Let me go. Like, yeah. <laughs> I would not. I, I probably would have said Quidditch to family, but I did not to anyone else. Yeah, true. I had a, a few weeks ago. I was checking my medical records, and um, there's a time when I got injured um, while I was down at university in southampton and um the doctor's note they'd put the oh he's he's like broken his bone playing cricket and i was like what i've never played cricket <laughs> and i think i realized the doctor must have put cricket because i said quidditch to him and he's like i don't know what he's talking about oh i think he meant cricket right let's put yeah. that down <laughs> it's like <laughs> i did not hear that correctly it must have been something else yeah it could not have <laughs> been quidditch. pretty much and, uh, like, yeah, it sounds like a, a fantastic experience, like getting to hang out with all these sort of star names with Lone Star. And yeah, they're incredible yep. people. And yeah, shout out to Cody we had on a few episodes ago. He's uh, definitely a, a larger than life character. Um, Absolute legend. Yeah. In terms of your time, I guess before the shoulder injury at Southwest Fantasy, how did you feel like you were playing that tournament? Like, Obviously, with kind of the concentration of those Texas players there, did you feel like you were hanging with those guys? Or like, did you realize, oh, there's another level to this? Um, honestly, I felt like I was hanging. Um, I, I was really nervous coming in. Um, but I didn't feel out of place at any point. Um, I felt like I was doing every... And there was, like, the big lesson I learned, because I think in Australian Quidditch at that point, it was all about bludger control. It was like, we will give up a goal to hold bludger control. And I think that was how I was playing for like the first game. And then me and Molly had this chat and they were basically like, we don't care about bludger control, score the bloody goals. Like (laughs) if you can give up bludger control for a goal, 
the way they like i think i'm pretty sure it was them if, if i'm misquoting them whatever it was some smart person who talked to me about quidditch she was like you can always get blood to control back when that point is on the board it can never come off right it, that, that point's never disappearing off the board but you can always get another bludger into your hand so if you can give up the bludger for a goal do it every time no matter what yeah i think over time that's become one of like the old ancient quidditch proverbs that people have steadily grown to know <laughs> over it's, time it's so say. true though like and then mm. yeah so i think once i um started doing that everything flowed a lot better and i think i was playing quite well um moving forward and was good a, a good part of the beta course so look we'll never know but we were undefeated while i was playing so yeah if you kept playing you never know you never know sadly you were met by some uh texas hospitality <laughs> yeah it happens it happens i mean they they tackle large and they love large that's how it is right true true also worth mentioning to our, our listeners um luke's currently wearing a, a texas hoodie right now I did like not know if you were going to call me out on that. Um, Cody <laughs> took me to Texas University. I still have this hoodie, Cody. It is falling apart, but it is so comfortable. <laughs> mm, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I, I knew this would be a great area of uh, conversation. Um, we're going to take things back to your time with the Unspeakables. Um, just kind of, I guess, wrap up that in many ways, kind of. Just kind of looking back on your time with the team, what are your favourite memories playing for the Unspeakables, both on the pitch and also off the pitch? What what kind of stands out to you? Um, I think on the pitch there's two. The first was when we qualified for that um, that American World Cup at that point. Um, we'd like that was our second. Yeah, that was our second nationals. Um, and in the quarterfinals, we were playing against... So our team is the, like, super underdogs. We're playing against the favourites who were hosting the tournament. And they were already fundraising to go to World Cup. <sighs> but only the top four teams qualified. <laughs> um, and then next to us, there was another, like, a Perth team who ended up winning the tournament, but they were underdogs to the other favourites. And within 10 seconds, they caught the snitch to win, and then we caught the snitch to win. So both of the favourites got knocked out within 10 seconds of each other. <laughs> and, like, this snitch catch was not good. Like, it, it basically what had happened was, this was back when I was, like, playing in bare feet. Like, half our team was in bare feet, our seeker was <laughs> in bare feet. Their seeker had backed the snitch up onto our side of the pitch so far that when our seeker was beat, he wasn't paying any attention. He touches the hoop, turns around, and basically has to take one step forward and takes the seek, takes the snitch. Like, <laughs> it wasn't a skilled catch, but that's <laughs> what qualified us. Like, it was it was an absolutely ridiculous game. Um, so that, like, there's this photo that we've still got, which was insane. Um and that was, like, one of the best moments in terms of, like, the early usage. Um, and then I think the the semifinals run with Usid in 2015, I think, um, at Quaffle was really, really good. It felt like we were playing really well. And there was, like, the old the old kids of Usid and then the new kids of Usid all sort of merged together in this perfect, like, 
all of the new kids were playing well and all the old kids were playing well and no one had really left yet. And it was this like, it, it's great when there's this like turnover in your team, but everyone's still around. So you get the best of both worlds. I think that's where it really came into us. And like, we only had like 15 minute break between our quarterfinal and our semifinal, but that's also where, if anyone has seen the, the like Quidditch truck gif from, um, from Australia, uh, Nicholas Albanoz, that's where he like grabs the ball in that quarterfinal and runs through every single player oh, yeah. on the opposing team yes, multiple times. And where like all of our other chasers are standing on the hoops being like, you can pass us the ball if you want. And he's like, nah. <laughs> just like runs forward, keeps going, pushes them all off over and over again and scores. Um, so that was that tournament. Um, so like those were like some really, really good times with Usid. Um, but like off pitch, Honestly, if you were trying to build culture in your club, after every training, just go to the pub. I Like, it sounds so stupid, but it actually works. Like, we we used to go to this pub. It was called the Roxbury. It's closed down now, but we were the only people who went there. And so, like, it was super quiet. There was, like, two other tables or two. And then there's us, like, a group of, like, 20 people getting drunk and playing, like, Mafia for four hours. <laughs> um really really loudly like to the extent we're like that day that like we had like our christmas party at that pub and we like booked out an area and they were like yeah sure whatever like you guys have given us so much money over this year so that was like definitely that one of the top points like out of oh like off the field that really made a difference okay so it sounds like a really good mixture of things and uh i really like the that first story about qualifying for world cup where see the team had already started fundraising like there's a little bit of like oh yeah we're, we're definitely going to be going like they started putting money yeah. towards it and they're like oh oh we're not going great <laughs> yeah look look at like talking to those players now i feel really bad back then our teams didn't really like each other that much but, like, now, like, some of them are on my team. And I'm like, yeah, like, that was pretty, pretty awful. Like, <laughs> sorry. But, like, we're trying to win a game. True, true. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, as you're saying, that, like, semi-final run as well, I think that's a really kind of, yeah, like, a good sort of mixture of things. Um, sort of having those sort of old heads there who kind of there sort of when you started and then... This kind of new generation, and obviously, what you said went on to do after you left. Um, kind of the, the success they've had as a club, um, yep. being one of the best university clubs within Australia for quite a long time. So yeah, yep. sounds like a a pretty pretty good way to finish things with with the team. Yes, um, and then the 2016 run, we made we like lost to the Manticores in the quarterfinals, um, and that was my last game with Usid. But like, I think, like, not to toot my own horn. But like I think like me and me and Nat and Paul, Paul Harrison, Natalie Astolosh, and like a few of the people who knew we were gonna move on, like we knew we were doing serpents a year before we did it. So we put certain plans into place to really help Usid. Um, like I stepped down from coaching. I think I stepped down from coaching or captaining. It was one of them. And I stepped down from being president so that other people could fulfill different roles so that we weren't just abandoning the team with completely new coaches, completely new captains, completely new exec who hadn't had that experience. Um, we'd already started up the second team. 
I pushed AJ to run for president. He wasn't going to if I didn't elect him. I think that was a big turning point for USID is AJ's recruitment strategy. Um, but they took what we gave them and completely exceeded our expectations in terms of recruitment, making it to the finals in 2018 um, nationals. Uh, and they, they've just done so well. And then so many of those graduates have moved on to the um, North City Nightmares program, which is doing really well as well. So USID is taking over and I'm not complaining about it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> true, true. No, I really like, yeah, your, yours and that's like sort of self-awareness sort of going, okay, we're going to be gone soon, right? Where do you, how do we want to leave this club? Like we, we want to leave it in kind of the best, most capable hands. And I think a lot of teams get sucked into that sort of, that lust to win trophies and to be as successful as they can while they're at their university team. And then they leave and a few other people leave. And then the team is just a shell of what it used to be. Um, so it's really good to be able to empower these people in these leadership roles and then kind of allow that sustainability going forward. Yeah. But like they, they put in so much work and they, yeah, they really completely did everything that, we ever could have asked them to leaving that club and you said still running so well because of those people that took over after us, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fantastic. It's a, a great example for many a university team to follow. We um, try, you know? <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> great. Um, so we're going to talk about the time with the drop bears now, uh, which I'm sure you're pretty pleased to be talking about. Um, sure. So, it yeah. was a great time. <laughs> great time indeed. Um, you were first selected for the team uh, in 2014 for the Global Games over in Canada. Um, so heading over there, what was that tournament like from your perspective and how do you feel that you individually and also collectively performed uh, that tournament? Um, so I got selected as a beater and the keeper on you said Cameron Brown got selected as a keeper. However, the Nationals tournament like two months before we got selected, our first two games were at opposite positions. Um, and so, but, and he was playing beater and I was playing keeper and I made the decision to move it honestly, cause I wanted more control um, <laughs> of how the game was running. Um, and I saw that in beating, but the way he was moving was really useful as a kid. He was very long and thin and agile. So that really worked for a non-tackle environment so well. Um, so we were coming into being selected for a global global team in positions that we'd played for two or three months. Um, so that was a really crazy experience. Um, so we got picked for that. And then we, we played those positions for another six months. But coming into that tournament, it was it was literally just like, let's try our best. You know, like we, this is the first time because we'd sent a team to that like expo thing in the UK. Um, but that wasn't really a selected team. It was more like whoever could afford to go could go sort of thing. Um, mm. Because that was very, very early years of Quidditch. Um, so this was like the first time we'd actually selected a team and we didn't really practice beforehand. We like, I met half my teammates like two days out from the tournament. So like it was, it was literally just like, let's go and try our best, you know? Um and I think most of the teams at that point sort of knew it was a race for second. Um, 
and like you'll see that in the scores if you look back at them like we beat the uk by snitch no by snitch catch in overtime or something like that like it that was close um we beat france in overtime i think um we beat canada by a snitch catch like those four teams were so close i think france ended up coming sixth which was really unlucky for them because they lost in the five six playoff against mexico um and then belgium that was such a good tournament for them even though they lost that was a really good starting point for like the sepe louis sort of like grouping that came later um but yeah that tournament was a lot of fun but i think everyone knew that it was a race for second and we just or personally i just went out to try and prove that I like deserve to be on the team because I felt like I was a late pick sort of thing. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense overall. Um, just kind of, well, kind of the way the team was put together. Um, and obviously he said like sort of meeting your top, your teammates right beforehand. Um, and yeah, sort of going in very little like expectations and kind of hoping for the best. And obviously when you travel so far for just one tournament, and like obviously people are rooting for you back home and I don't know, but, oh, the game's also recorded for, for YouTube and things like that. Um, there's a certain element of, oh, well, spent all this money and I've been picked for the team. Yeah, I've got to, got to prove that I belong here. Yeah, thankfully we were able to um, participate in West Fantasy um, as an Australian team, um, pre like uh, the week before, the week or two beforehand in America, which was really good. Um, but then not, I don't think any of the Melbourne people were there for that. So it was just the New South Wales people who'd played with each other anyway. Um, so yeah, it was, I don't know. I'm not sure if you know this, but I have a giant chip on my shoulder, um, <laughs> in terms of like, like I, for, for, for the longest time. And if I'm honest still now, I, I still want to be known as like the best player in Australian Quidditch. Um, like, I don't think anyone doesn't know that about me who knows me that well. Um, <laughs> I think we all know it's Callum Mailing, and I'm not sure I'm ever going to chase him. I'm ever going to catch him. But, you know, we can try. Um, so, like, I, coming into that tournament, I was like, this is crazy. Like, I, I was shocked I even got picked for the team. But once I got picked for the team, it was definitely like, I need to go out and prove that I belong here and prove that amongst all these people who've been playing for a lot longer in these positions that I, that it, that I wasn't a wrong pick, you know, that I, that people watching the games weren't like, Oh, he should have been someone else. That's I, I never wanted that. And I never still to this day, never want that. Like when, when, when you walk on pitch, you don't want someone to be like, man, they should have put someone else on, you know, like that's like the worst feeling. <laughs> <laughs> um Very true. so like yeah i think that was that was my mindset coming in but i think the team was just have fun do our best try to get second mm -hmm. yeah and obviously kind of set you guys in pretty good stead um so as you kind of mentioned there kind of that mentality of like i want to prove myself i want to prove that i belong here um kind of in the years between 2014 global games and then the 2016 world cup you went for a pretty impressive physical transformation. It's something we've talked about in the past. Um, so how did you manage to get into such good shape? Um, honestly, I did it. Uh, do, do you want the honest truth? We, we always want the honest truth, Luke. I did it very, very, very unhealthily. Um, <laughs> and, and like, in all honesty with you, I, okay. 
So it started in America where I actually lost weight in America in Texas, which I still don't really understand. No, it um, doesn't make sense at all. <laughs> I mean, I then went to New York and just sat in my friend's apartment for three days and like watched Arrow and hung out with him and ate pizza and I still lost. I, I don't understand. Um, the Australian food must just be really bad. Uh, but <laughs> coming forward, knowing, for, coming towards the 2016 team, I knew that I needed to be fitter to make that team. Um, <clears throat> and so it was only like October, November, December that I like started a little bit. And when I mean a little bit, I mean like going for a walk every like Sunday morning and like trying to like run a little bit. And that like my working out at that point, even building up to the 2016 World Cup, wasn't that good. Like I was at the gym maybe like two or three times a week, maybe. Um, and like, I was with a personal trainer for a little bit, but then I fell off sometimes and like my workout plan wasn't good, but I like, I cut out basically anything that I saw as a bad food. <laughs> like I, I, my, but I didn't cook a lot of the time. I just exclusively ate like sushi and Subway and like, like, I think I had like a sandwich for breakfast or like an omelet or something. Like it was definitely diet wise. And so I dropped down from about 115 kg in 2015 to about, what was I at World Cup, like 82? Um, That's huge. But Yeah, so it was like 35 kg, but like over, over a year. So like that in itself isn't, it's not great, but it's not like the worst thing in the world. But I... I was like binge eating sometimes and like it was it was a very unhealthy unhealthy time and in between 2016 and 2018 I gained a bit of weight back but then I like I hired a nutritionist and I actually started working out properly and that weight loss between that was far healthier and I was actually at like 77 when I was playing in 2018 like kgs but that weight loss was far healthier because I actually had like a professional working with me and stuff. But that, that 2016 weight loss, though it looks impressive, wasn't healthy. And there's still this video that like, is like me and Miles Sneddon, um, now Miles Newton, um, after the tournament, after we'd won, just like eating a chocolate bar for the first time in like three months. <laughs> and it was like, we just both have these like the most like euphoric faces on being like, Oh my God, sugar. Like <laughs> it was, it was, oh man, it was so great. And then the whole time in Germany, we just ate Chipotle because I found it and I started loving it. So, and it was only like a small tram ride away from the hotel. So we literally went as a team the majority of the time and just went and got Chipotle. It was, it was, yeah. But that don't do what I did, even though it looks <laughs> good. Don't do what I did. Yeah, it's, it's it's good to good to share that, and I guess a precautionary tale to uh, anyone who looks at that journey and sort of goes, "Hmm, that might be a good thing." No, don't don't do it that way. <laughs> like losing weight, getting fit, great. Eating healthy, great. Just don't. I I have a really bad habit of taking things to the extreme, and I think I did that then, and that wasn't the best health wise. <laughs> yeah, true. I, I, I'm just kind of. I guess not really, I guess stunned at kind of the discipline you had to sort of go, right, bad food, right, not having chocolate, not having sweets, whatever, and just kind of go at it for sort of a year or so. But then it was like, 
but then like one day a month I would get my anything I wanted and when I say anything I wanted it was like I was trying like I didn't think this at the time but it, I was basically eating 10 to 12,000 calories on that like binge day like my dinner would be like a full pizza garlic bread a block of chocolate and a pint of Ben and Jerry's <laughs> and I, I could easily smash that I have a large appetite but like yeah. it was that like yo-yoing is so bad um and there just needed to be a little bit more consistency in terms of like having a chocolate bar once a week but not having those binge days and that would have done so much better health wise and mental health wise and actually exercising as well like i was skin and bones at that 2016 world cup yeah sounds like a pretty good learning process about nutrition and yeah exercise and all, all, all of that and obviously it's put you in like a, a better place now the i i do like the whole thing about eating chipotle though because for me that's like that's my favorite fast food like when i go it's to america so good. It's, it's it's amazing it's addictive so it's, like it, like, oh, like do you know about usain bolt at the the beijing olympics how he just ate chicken nuggets like I've while heard he was about out this. there yeah yeah the, the like right world cup okay chipotle that's it that's all i'm having it was like me and nat arrived like a day before everyone else or like a day before the majority of people um and it just happened to be like literally next to that hotel we were staying in at that point. And then when we moved like that night for dinner, everyone was like, where are we going to go for dinner? And me and that were like, well, there's this mall. And so we like took like a <laughs> five minute tram ride. And then like, there were no, like Chipotle was the best option every time. Um, I'm sure other people got something, other things sometimes. I didn't. I got exactly the same order from Chipotle every time. And it was great. And I do not regret anything. <laughs> Go, go, go on then, Luke. What is your Chipotle order? Do, do tell I think us. it was just like a chicken, like a chicken burrito bowl or something like that with like guac and like brown rice because I was still like trying to be healthy at that point. It was great. Um, in Australia, we have Zambreros, which is like possibly like the best in my opinion. There's like Zambreros and Mad Max and Guzman and Gomez. I put Zambreros above the other two. That's like a personal preference of mine. Um, my friend in Melbourne, Nicola Gertler, every time I stay with her for a tournament, we're getting Zambreros twice, regardless <laughs> of what she says. And she knows that now because um, <laughs> that's like the only time. But now it's in Sydney. So that's great. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah good, <laughs> good to know for, well, I guess for a lot of our listeners kind of outside the US, it's not going to mean much. But yeah, Chipotle is incredible. Um, it's in like... It's in Germany now. It's in Germany, America, Canada. I feel like there's... A, I think it might be in France as well. It's in, like, some really random countries. Yeah, they've got, I think, like, two two locations in London, but nowhere else in the UK, which I'm quite... That's about right. I'm quite annoyed at, personally. I, I quite like one in Manchester, but <laughs> for, for my own for my, my own pleasure. But. Yeah, but would you eat anything else? That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it might, might be a bit dangerous. I don't know. <laughs> it's probably accurate. Probably accurate. So, yeah, we've, we've kind of talked around it so far, but could you talk us through your experience of the 2016 World Cup, like, as a whole, kind of, how did you prepare for tournament? Kind of, how did you find the atmosphere? And, yeah, just kind of the general vibe of the tournament. Um, wild time. Um, <laughs> no, so, like, leading up to the tournament, I think we... 
knew that like we were some sort of underdog in a way because like we'd lost to America so harshly last time. But I looked at the American team and I was like, we have a chance. Like I put together this document of like six games that every single one of the American players had played and then like wrote an analysis of them and like sent it to all of the Australian team. And then I did that for the UK team and the French team, I think as well, of of all the players that I could find. So we were decently prepared um, in terms of strategy wise, um, sort of knowing what each player was going to do individually. Um, It's just when you get to that tournament and you see what the team's going to do as a group, I think is very different. Um, Getting to that tournament, I, in all honesty, personally wanted to be like all world team and like be like the best beater. um, But knew that like winning the tournament was like the most important thing for us. Uh, And then like the first day was the first day. Belgium was a tough game. Um, They had some really good players. They kept us sort of close than we probably hoped. Um, And then the other games were against like some of the weaker teams in our pool. So we were meant to win those, I guess. And we did. Um, I don't think it, no one in Australia will forget the Ireland match. Oh where, man, that was incredible. Yeah. yeah um, <laughs> where I got two, two yellow cards. That was me. I was the red card. Um, I disagree with both the calls, but we won't get into that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so there's four players in our sub, in our bench and in, in our sub, like the card box. Um, both of our beaters and two chasers and um we still we still didn't let them score it was great um it was like caitlin thomas and miles were like the defensive stalwarts and they stopped the goal so look the first day was all right and then we had this conversation like the start of the second day and i think we were all a bit worried because like france had like france had like lost a snitch catch or something to move down to fourth to play us because they didn't want to play America in the semis. And so like their choice was we want to play Australia. And I think that to a degree had us a bit unsettled. Um, but I think going into it, Hannah Monty just sort of turned around and was like, let's just win the next game or win every game. Like, let's just say that and let's, let's just do it. And everyone was like, yeah, all right. Like, let's just go win every game. Um, and it was that sort of like simplicity, I think, that really helped us. Because um, we did like the, I don't remember who we played in the um, round of 16. I think it might have been Germany. Oh, yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was Germany. It was yeah. a repeat of the Expo match. Um, so that wasn't that wasn't bad. And then France was just pff, a tough game. Um, they outplayed us for the first little bit. Definitely agree with that. Um anyone who sees the score and anyone who sees the game knows it's very much a game of two halves. Like they were up what 60, 40 at snitch on pitch. And then we scored four quaffle points in a row um, to get up 20 points and then catch. But that catch is a wild ride because they had snitch. They had blood to control like the whole time. Like set um, Etienne and their other beater. Um, I can't remember that guy's name, but they were on the snitch the whole time. And basically, our beta strategy was run and throw it, hit the seeker, get beat, run and get the blood and hit the seeker again over and over again. Um, and then there ended up like this like pile up where like Nick Allen tackled someone and Leslie Fox like stole a blood and like everyone was beat. 
and then their seeker ran up, tried to catch the snitch tail, and stood on the seeker's foot. And the seeker, as the as the moment that sorry, the seeker stood on the snitch's foot. And as the snitch went, oh, ow, my foot, Damo just grabbed him from behind. <laughs> and that's how we won our quarterfinal in the time we won the World Cup. Um, crazy, crazy. You can't see it quite on camera, but I remember seeing it. It was it was a wild time. Um, and then moving into the semis, we actually thought there was going to be an easier game than it was, um, to be honest. We, we were like, oh, like, we're fine. Like, we'll do great. Um, and then, like, by the time it snitched on pitch, it's, like, 40-30, and we were like, oh, crap. Um, I think we just, like, missed so many chances and, like, had it really taken advantage of, like, some of the advantages we had. We just sort of, like, left some easy goals on the floor. Um, and then Neil caught the snitch in, like, 11 seconds. It was literally, like, I was standing with him when they were about to enter. I beat the seeker, threw my bludger at the beater, hit him he missed as i picked up my as i picked up the bludger nearly caught the snitch that's literally <laughs> it that's all i had time to do before Neil bang bang him. bang three quick so plays it was, all yeah done. literally within like 10 11 seconds he was it was gone um so that was that was wild and then because the because uk and canada took such a long time with their um their, their like third fourth plan um, third, fourth, we were like walking around for ages beforehand, um, before that final. And then that final was just a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, like I think going into that final, all, all, all I was thinking about was we meddled. Great. Like I, like all of the pressure I felt coming off my shoulders, like we'd come here, we meddled. If we lost to America, no one was going to be surprised. Right. I think, honestly, America is in such a lose-lose situation there. They win, everyone goes, yep, that's what should have happened. And if they lose, everyone's like, whoa, this is huge, right? Like, there's, there's no way, like, America comes out of that finals game and everyone's like, whoa, America, like, fought really hard and stuff. They'll just be like, yeah, America should have won, which I think is unfair. But that's, that's what would have been the common storyline, even in America, you know, like... You saw it in the articles afterwards. People were like, oh, like, how could America have lost? And so, like, you just know. And, like, the podcast beforehand were like, America's going to win. And it was very dismissive of that. So they had all the pressure on them, and we had none of it. It's like it's like those classic, like, underdog sports movies, right? Where, like, the, like, upstart team has no pressure on them. And then the, like, the more skilled, more talented team who comes from, like, the country of that sport is all the pressure, right? So mm. I think there was a lot of, like, freedom to our play, which I think really showed at the start, right? Like, the pass, like, Keller mailing to Taya and then Taya just, like, threw it over Jake's head. Like, that's not a play you make if you're, like, worried about the score, you know? Like, that's a play you make because it's the right play. Like, there's... I'm not sure about you, but, like, in games, there's the difference between the right play and the play you make because you're scared of losing. Like at some point you have to take risks to win the bloody game. But if you're so scared of losing, you don't take those risks. Mm. And I think that's what really benefited us in that game because we were just like, let's just take all the risks. Like, why not? Let's just like play our game, take it to America and see what they do. And then we got 30 up and we were like, 
all right, like, I guess we did it. Like, now now what do we do? Like, and, yeah, we, we managed to keep um, score with them. And then the beta game was a wild ride on the snitch. Like, um, Duquette completely got me. He, like, dropped his bludger, caught mine, beat me. And then Margot caught, but then it got called off. And I was like, all right. Like, I remember walking up to Duquette being like, good catch. Like, I was talking about, like, his catch of my beat, but I think he was thought I was talking about the seeker. Um, yeah. So that was a wild ride. And then like, yeah. And then we managed to get it off. And I still like watch the moment where like, I'm doing nothing standing around the snitch with like a blood jar. And no, I, I don't even, yeah, I, I have a blood jar. And Danny like runs in from behind, strips Duke, or strips Max and just hits Duquette in the back. And I was like, this is insane. Um, and then we ended up with the snitch. It was, that whole tournament was an absolute ridiculous ride. Like, insane yeah fantastic it's it's great to hear about all of that and kind of obviously we, we talked about it a few occasions sort of during um our podcast obviously when, when Taya was on um a few episodes ago um and like it's really interesting kind of hearing her account of things but also your account of things i like... haven't heard her podcast <laughs> the cheek, cheeky plug go go listen to it it's great um yeah. But uh, yeah, like it sounds initially like you had, you put in an extensive amount of research, like watching that amount of film and making that amount of notes is just, well, it's, it's pretty ridiculous to start off with. Um, and like what what kind of things were you looking at? So I guess with a lot of beaters, um, they talk about, about tendencies, right? So was that kind of a thing you were looking at for each individual? Um, a little bit, a little bit tendency wise, like... Um... Duquette has different tendencies to Tyler, who has different tendencies to Max. Um, each one of them is slightly more, like, defensive or offensive than the other. Um, but, like, the biggest thing, honestly, with the beaters is was watching... Um, it was Amanda Turtle's um, Alyssa? I feel like... Hmm. Alyssa Burton, yeah. Alyssa Burton, yes, yeah. yes. Um, and then Crashly, I think, was the other beater at the yeah. time. Um both Alyssa and Amanda in the West were doing the like um, sandwich move where like as the beaters trade, you actually throw your bludger over to your free beater and then they beat the person you were trading with and gets both bludgers. Um, and so we, me and Nat found that when we were watching tape in like April and brought that to a training and did it on the other drop bears beaters. And they were like, what the hell is this? <laughs> um, Cause they were just like, so surprised. Um, and so we started using that. So we knew that was possibly coming. Um, and like things like that, just like, because when we had gone sort of going all the way back to 2014, when me and Nat had gone over there, we, for the first time saw the 1.5. Like we'd never thought of that before, and so when we brought that 1.5 back to America, uh, back to Australia, everyone was like, "What the hell is this? This is cheating. This is illegal." And we were like, "It's <laughs> really not. Like, here's why it's not. Here's America. Like, blah 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 blah." And so that became part, and we didn't want that stuff to happen again. We didn't want to walk to like go to a tournament, and America's like, "Oh, here's this other thing," and we're like, "What the hell is this?" In the middle of a final, you know. Mm. um so we that's that's one of the reasons i wanted to be prepared and like things like um people's tendencies in terms of like driving to the right or driving to the left as ball carriers or do they prefer shooting do they prefer will they always run on the fast break um jake archibald um 
those sorts of things, right? So like small tendencies, but important things. Like, um, yeah. So I think it was overall good, but I think it's just important for you to watch players before you play them. Like that'll always help. Even subconsciously, it'll help. Mm, yeah, that's, that's really interesting to hear. And like, kind of, I guess kind of talking about it as a whole, we kind of touched on it there. Um, kind of in the, the two years between Global Games and the World Cup, how do you feel Australia as, as a whole kind of closed the gap on the US? Like what, what do you think really changed in that time? Honestly, I think it was physicality in a lot of ways. Um, I think like Callum Mailing had only just joined the sport in 2014. I feel like that's the case. Like people like him, um, James Osmond was in the 2014 one, but he hadn't really like, we hadn't had tackle as much, right? Like there's a difference between you're tackling at a national level for like six months as opposed to two years and six months, right? That, that tackle is so much more complicated. And then you bring minds into the sport like Callum, like, Whoever looks at Callum Mailing and goes, he is just a physical beast, is incredibly wrong. Like, that man, when you talk to him about Quidditch, knows what he's talking about. And, look, I, I love Callum. He's not the most articulate at times. But, like, he is very, very smart getting onto the pitch. And he knows how to swing the game in certain ways. Yeah, he's got that and sports I think brain. 100%. And he is actually a lot of the times one step or two steps ahead of other players in terms of thinking about where to move the ball. Um, and then you add that with Miles, who is just a pure shooter, really, um, who's great at it. It's it, it, it added this very interesting dynamic. And then you add people like Jared Grouse, um, who was another physical presence. Um, Nathan Morton was still playing chaser at that point. Um, and you also added, like, Caitlin Thomas, Cassian Menkhorst, like, these, like, physical female chases as well really really helped um there, there were like so many good screens on larger players and like there's still this amazing screen by um cassia on harry greenhouse and it feels like he thinks he's just going to go through her and like they actually bounce off each other in a way and like i think that added level of physicality and just experience ultimately really helped right like we're never going to catch up purely like strategically to america but uh like there i always think of quidditch as this like um like ladder right like you're climbing the rungs in terms of at a hundred you're like the best player in the world right that like 10 to like first rung to like the 50th rung super easy it's called learning how to catch right like that will get you like if you catch the ball nine times out of ten that's going to get you into the top half of quidditch players realistically um, and then, like, every step that you go is harder than the other, and the separation is less. So, like, if you talk about the top beaters or the top keepers or whatever, you're talking, like, one rung or half a rung, like, the 95 or the 95.5% or the 95.2%, because that 0.1% took a year, because that that super-level, high-level of separation is nothing. So... Honestly, once you get to high-level games, like, you think Cavalry versus Heat. You think Austin versus Boston a lot of the time. Those those games are going to come down to snitch range games because the differences between the teams, if they're both playing well, are so minuscule, right? And 
lots of people know that I, in, in my opinion, if you're in snitch range games, you deserve to lose. Like, the, like you have not put yourself in a position where you should win, and it's up for a coin flip, and we won the coin flip. Like, Margot's catch could have been called good. There would have been nothing. I would have had nothing against that. I mean, Duquette outplayed me. Havlin outplayed me and Hannah at that point. Like, that is what it is, and that catch was called off. And when we got a catch where we outplayed them for a little bit, that's all that mattered, you know? Like, at that high levels, I don't really think we were better than America. I just think on that day, we played the same as them and came out a bit luckier. Okay, that's. I really like that. Yeah, that sort of mental approach you have, both in kind of the game as a whole, but also that final in particular. Kind of how you mentioned before that, like, America had all the pressure. You guys didn't have any pressure whatsoever. Like, you were kind of, if you lost, yeah, so what? Like, so when when I've watched the US play other teams and kind of analysed it, there has been that kind of difference between the teams. And I think... Belgium, in many ways, when they played them two years later in the final, had that same mentality that was like, yeah, we're just little Belgium. Like, we're supposed to lose this game. Let's have a go. Let's try and put them under pressure. Let's play our game. And that's what actually improved their chances of beating the US. Yeah, I think America is always going to suffer from that. They're the biggest Quidditch country. And until a team wins, like, two World Cups in a row out of range on America, they will always be the favourites and they will always have that pressure on them. And that is a really tough situation to be in. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I'm going to talking about, I guess, that whole moment after Damo's catch gets called good and the whole place goes nuts and like people are mobbing the pitch and it's just absolute pandemonium. Within kind of all that chaos, uh, Nick Hurst captured this brilliant photo of you and Damo, kind of just sharing this moment together. So could you tell us, like, what's going on that photo? Is like, is there, what, what what's happening between you two there? Honestly, I think it was just like, like, that That was such a wild, because that was the first Quidditch tournament I ever won, was World Cup. Um, so that was a very, like, like, I'm not in that, like, if you see videos of it, there's, like, that giant, like, Damo gets risen up, he gets given a bear, he skulls the bear on the pitch. It's a great time. <laughs> I'm not in that. I was just like holding my head be like, I won a tournament. Holy shit. Like <laughs> that was insane. I was like overwhelmed by like quite a lot. And I think that moment was actually like five or 10 minutes after it happened because like it's cleared out a little bit and demos come down from the group. Um, and I think we were just like, like obviously just like, I was just like congratulating him being like, you, you did it. Like you effing did it. Like, this is absolutely insane. And I think it was one of those things where you have these goals with people and a lot of the time, especially in a sport, in a sports team, like you want to win, right? And that's your goal, but you don't really think it's plausible. Like you aim for these goals and you try your hardest at them, but you don't truly believe it can actually happen. And then it did. And, like, we're both looking at each other be like, this is not the reality. What is happening? Like, what dream are we in right now? Because <laughs> this goal that we'd been working for actually happened. And I, I think, like, one of, the other, one of the other clips that really summarizes that for me is there's this other angle of the win where it shows the Australian team bench 
I'm not sure if you've seen it, but like everyone runs onto the pitch except for two people, and that's Callum Mailing and James Hyder. James Hyder like collapses to his knees, like looking up, being like, like almost like praising God for like what's happened. And Callum Mailing's just like was drinking water and he just like takes the water bottle and just starts pouring it over his head. Like, it's, it's the best moment. He doesn't even have a smile on his face. He's just, like, in shock. Like, it's just that it's that goal that you strive for for so long and never really feel it's plausible until it happens. And then you just don't know what to do with yourself. Because, and, and I think you see that as, like, we celebrated with the medals and, like, all of that sort of stuff. Like, people are just, like, there's this, like, happiness to them. But there's also this, like, level of shock on their faces like the Australian team people are like halfway between like, oh my God, like what is happening in my life and smiling and like exhausted. And like their, their expressions like change a lot. If you watch the videos, cause like we're all just sort of like a bit puzzled um, <laughs> by everything that's happening around us. Um, and like, that's how I felt like every time someone came up and congratulated me, I was like, thanks. Like, uh, like it can't be that big of a deal if we won, you know, like it, it's, it's just a crazy, crazy moment. And that will forever go down as like probably my favorite moment in Quidditch. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. There's a, um, yeah. Cause you kind of look at that photo kind of capturing that moment. I think that was like, I think if you think about that tournament, there's the, the image of Damo being lifted up and then there's yep. that one as well. Yeah. <laughs> It's like just so iconic. So it's great to kind of hear what was going on at that moment. Yeah. And it's got my really bad haircut because some of the Australian team members gave each other haircuts on like the Tuesday before <laughs> the tournament. So like I basically have a mohawk because like four different people had to like slowly cut my hair back because it just wasn't working. Um, that's why some of us have really bad haircuts in that tournament. <laughs> true, true. Um, and obviously when you got back to Australia, what was like the reception like back home? Um, it was great. My dad met me at the airport. My partner at the time baked me a cake. I was really happy. Um, but like, I think it was, it was almost like a universal, like, a, like it's that, okay. I love you, America. Please don't hate me. It's that very American thing where they're like, where the whole of Australia went, we won. Like, it, it, it was like every time you met, like, an Australian Quidditch person after that point, like, it felt like you'd won together. Like, that it was like an achievement for all of Australian Quidditch. It's, it's, that's a very American thing to me, because, like, whenever they talk about, like, oh, I'm a Lakers fan, we won the championship. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's a very, like, sports American thing. Um, so, yeah, it just felt like everyone had, like, embraced it as, like, we won the championship. Um, and then there were like people wearing drop bears jerseys all the time and stuff like that. So it was great. It was a lot of fun. Um, and it was, it was really nice having those connections across Australia as well. And we still kept in contact and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, true. It's uh, kind of that, I guess, sort of tribal instinct that you get with a lot of sports teams kind of spread across the country. What, yeah, what was it exactly. like in what was it like in terms of like the kind of external recognition? Like, do you get like TV like coverage or like radio interviews, anything like that? Um, there was really funny one. We went on like Channel Seven and like April. Channel Seven and Channel Nine are like the two big channels in Australia. We went on like Channel Seven Sunrise, um, and it was like me, James Mortensen, and Hannah Monty. 
and it was like a it was like a it was for like a fundraiser or something like that like it was just and then hannah just made like an off-handed comment being like we'll come back when we win and then we won and then i think <laughs> hannah and someone else actually went back and like had a chat to them again about it um because that was it was just really funny right um, that like she said that offhandedly and it actually happened. Um, but I think like there were there were a few like the the one article uh it was I think it was a Quidditch Post article. It was like um the world turned upside down or something like that. Great line, classic Hamilton line. Um <laughs> but that was really interesting. Like it it really painted that picture that I was talking about before, right? Is that like part of it was congratulations, Australia won. But a lot of the storylines were how could America have lost? And I and I found that really interesting. Like you go into um, American Quidditch um, discussions and all that sort of stuff. And like there was just so much criticism of the American team. And like were they perfect? No. But were we perfect? No. And I think it just goes to show that like if you win, all of your sins are washed away. Right? Like if America had won, no one would have said a word. No one, no one would have been like, oh, this player shouldn't have been picked for the team. The American team needs to do stuff differently. They just would have been like, yeah, it got a bit closer. And like, maybe like, maybe we should change something up for something different. But like, it, it just felt like there was almost like a witch hunt, especially for like the coach, for like his line choices and like some of the player choices for the team. And it was like, just like, it was it was very much like it wasn't just Australia won, it was Australia won and America lost. And at a lot of the times you didn't know which storyline was actually the bigger one. Which I found interesting, but ultimately just a bit sad for a lot of those American players because like I was like quite good friends with some of them, right? Like um in the middle ceremony where we're coming over, like Harry like talks to me for a bit, like as the Australian people are filing and like he pulls me aside and talks to me for a bit. Um, because like I'd known him quite well and we still stay in contact now. Like I, I just think it was a bit unfair in terms of that witch hunt of some of the American players, and I don't think they play badly at all. Mm. I just think at that point our top line happened to be near their top line. Like, for example, the 2018 World Cup, they won. We played them in Snitch Range basically twice. Belgium played them in Snitch Range. They won. Who cares? And it's a snitch catch. Like, you can't predict a snitch catch. Like, anyone who thinks they can predict a snitch catch is an idiot, right? Like, <laughs> that's, it's, it's such a coin flip. There are so many variables. So how does one snitch catch go from, yeah, our team won, to the coach needs, the coach was awful, some of the players were awful, how could we have done this? And that was just really unfair on a lot of those players. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good reflection on it as a whole and kind of appreciating... Oh, fantastic one, but also, yeah, seeing the other side of the coin as well. And, uh, I think we have the, the quote of the evening, <laughs> which is, uh, uh, anyone, anyone who thinks they can predict a snitch catch is an idiot. Like, it, it's priceless. so true. Like, you can be so, you can be such a good seeker, and then the snitch can, like, get, like, I, I've lost a tournament because the snitch got hit in the head with a bludger and instinctively went, oh, I'm beat turned towards a hoop and presented their tail to the seeker. And like how, like, it doesn't matter how good you are, like, you can have higher chances, but like, there are, there are times when you build a, like, Austin is built, or Austin or Cavalry, for example, because 
it's still um, a lot of the same people seeking and beating there. There's sometimes where they've built a beta wall over the snitch and it's taken them 10 seconds to catch. And sometimes it takes them 15 to 20 minutes. Like, you can help, but ultimately it's luck in a lot of ways. And that's just the case in Quidditch. And that's why I think MLQ has moved to make the, the snitch less impactful, which I think is a good move ultimately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good way of looking at it. The Yeah, you, you mentioned the 2018 World Cup there, uh, which we'll move on to now. Um, you were selected once more with, uh, onto the Drop Bears roster for that tournament in Florence and Italy. But how did you feel going into that tournament as reigning champions? Did you feel under pressure to win, kind of prove, prove it all again? Or did you feel like the US was still heavy favourites? Um. I felt like the U.S. were heavy favorites. Um, I felt like they had corrected a lot of the decisions they'd made um, in terms of having training, like they had a few training camps beforehand and all that sort of stuff. Um, And I think they were more prepared and their roster was stacked. It was so good. Um, But like, I think we did feel the pressure and ultimately I think that was a real negative for us. Like we felt that pressure and... Look, we can get into the whole why we're America and Australia in the same pool thing. Um, because, yep. Um, but, like, ultimately, if you want to win, you've got to beat the best. We weren't the best of that tournament and we didn't win. And do I think we deserve to be fifth? No. Um, the only team that played us within 120 quaffle points was America. Um, we We beat France by about... I think it was like 110 quaffle points plus the, plus the catch. So like, I, it, it is, it is what it is. And I take that fifth place with a lot of pride, but I do think we deserve to be better. Um, I think we could have done a lot better, but the tournament, like I, I think Ethan Sturm, and like Noah Schwartz with the eighth man, they wrote this article. I, I can't remember if Noah was involved or not, but they wrote this article about how tournaments are built. Uh, a lot of the time tournaments are built to um, figure out who the best team is, right? That's yep. what they're built for. They're not built to figure out who the best team and the second best and the third best and the fourth best and the fifth best and the sixth best. That's cool. what they're built for. They're built there to crown the champion. So ultimately tournaments you've got to be the best and be the champion. Otherwise tournament fixtures suck. Deal with it. You know, like who here hasn't had to play a game 10 minutes after another game, because that's how the fixture worked out. Who hasn't had to play a team that's equally the same as them in a quarterfinal. And it hasn't worked out, you know, like sometimes different sides of the brackets are bad. Sometimes a team didn't have their best player for two games and therefore is lower in the bracket and therefore is on the opposite. And the two best teams end up on the same side of it. It happens, you know, like, like it it was really demoralizing for us, but I think looking back on it, the right champion was crowned. They had the better snitch on pitch game. They won that. Um, We had our chances and we didn't take them and we were in snitch range. We deserve to lose. Like, it is what it is. You know, they got lucky in 2018. We got lucky in 2016. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very kind of logical way of looking at it. And obviously, with uh, 2018 World Cup, you played the US in 
group play and then in the quarterfinals. Um, obviously, in the f- first game, running up a 40-0 lead, the first time anyone had taken the US out of range in a game. Um, however, ultimately losing that game and the other game as well. Um, he said finishing fifth overall. So what what was it like playing those two games in 2018 in comparison with the 2016 final? Of how do you sort of how do you compare and contrast between those experiences playing against the US? Um, I think I think it's that whole thing of do do you play to win or do you play to not lose? And I think at the start of that 2018 game, when we 41 up, 40 nil up, we were playing to win. And then we started slow ball and we played to not lose. And that's what cost us the game. That's how they got back in it because we had like a really silly turnover because we hadn't practiced slow balling that much. And so there was like a like delay of game call. And then I think there was a card due to a delay of game call. And all of a sudden it was like 40, 20 and like, that's back in, you know what I mean? That's a game. So I think that's what changed in terms of that game. Um, we we started playing to lose and we lost. Um, in terms of the second game, I think that America made some really interesting changes that I think were really beneficial. Um, they tried to drive Callum out to the left. Um, I'm not sure which, which takes away his like inside shot. And it also, they stopped trying to tackle him. They started trying to push him away instead of trying to just dig in and tackle because those tackles weren't working in the first game. Um, Callum sort of ran amok. And even when he got like pile drives by like four people, he managed to get the ball out. Um, so I think that was really smart of them. I saw um, Andrew Axtell, Harry Greenhouse, um, Luke Langanay practicing that. Um I don't think we made that many changes. Um, was that a negative? I don't know. I think watching that game compared to the first game, there were a few passes that we hit in the first game that we didn't in the second game, um, but that were very, very similar plays. Like there was one where Callum drove around and passed it to Aussie, just like he did in the first game. And in the first game, Aussie scored. In the second game, he didn't. And that's going to happen, you know? Like, And we were pretty close. Like We were 30 points down, I think. 40 points, 30 points. It was something like that. Um, I think it was bouncing between. Um, And so, yeah, it's, again, hard. But I think, honestly, like, I've always said this to a lot of Australian people, I think Augie going down was actually beneficial to America in that game. And the reason that I say that is I think the Texas style of Quidditch played into what Callum wanted a lot more. I think their, their style of, like, drive and dish and like that step past the point and try and drive in really played into Callum's defensive style. But when I think when Augie went down and their keepers turned into Jake and Tyler, that Northeast style gave us more troubles. And so that unfortunately really cost us in a lot of ways. Um, even though it was really sad for Augie because he had to sit out the rest of the tournament. But I, but on the, on the flip side, I think it was really beneficial for Belgium that Augie wasn't playing against them because I think the Texas style shown by um, Simone really worked against Belgium. The Northeast style didn't as much. Um, so Augie going down, us not really making those adjustments, I think really made the difference. 
um, in that tournament, in, the, in that game. Um, and I think we felt a lot of pressure in that game as well, as, as did America probably. Um, but I think, I don't know, there was, especially with me, there was, there was a little bit of vibe of being cheated. Um, and I think that was, that was really stupid of me. Um, but I think there was a part of me that was just like, like, how can they make us versus America? Like, that's so unfair. Mm. Um, it's just like, win the next game, Luke, you're an idiot. Like, just win the game <laughs> and move on. Like, who cares who you're playing against? Just win the game. Um, so yeah, mindset didn't make a change. Augie's injury, I think it all sort of catapulted in that like 30 point difference from the first game. Um, but yeah, like if we won the first game, it was highly likely we would have played each other in the quarterfinal anyway because of the way they worked out the quarterfinal bracket. Um, yes, again, I have problems with that, but we can deal with that <laughs> another time. <laughs> true, true. Yeah, I, I love the like attention to detail, kind of the way you've obviously gone through these games afterwards and really looked through them. Um, and yeah, I, I hate, I hate watching myself lose. Like <laughs> my, my partner will know this. My t- I, I struggle to watch games that I know I'm lo- that I've lost. Yeah. But like at some point you have to. It sucks. But like, like I, I follow the Celtics in America with basketball. I don't watch games where I know they've lost. Like. <laughs> I, I just really can't do it, but you need to do it. You need to go back and look at what, what can improve on. Because if you're not, if you make a mistake and you lose a game and you improve from it, that's great. But if you just make the same mistake over and over again, because you're refusing to acknowledge what's happened, what's the point? Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard to do, but useful at the same time. And sort of conversely, when you want a game or play really, really well. Um, yeah. Like, I personally, I like, yeah, I'll watch that again and again and again, sort of slowly building up the hits on YouTube. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I was talking to one of my friends in Serpents about this. It's it's really hard, right, when, say, in training or in a game, something doesn't work or something does work. And I think there's um, this sort of, like, success bias that happens a lot of the time. You're like, this play worked, therefore it's good. And it's like, hold up, but you, like, like, the defender tripped on this mound in the dirt, and you, like, (laughs) threw the ball, and it, like, hit the keeper's head and bounced into the hoop. And you're like, that's not a good play. And on the same, and and, and on the opposite side of the spectrum, you can throw a ball, like, a perfect ball to a chaser, and they, like, he, like, misses the catch. That's not a bad play. You didn't make the wrong decision. You still made the right decision. It just didn't work out. And And you've got to have this way of looking at your your previous experiences not in a did it work or not but was it the right play and if it was the right play great you're making the right decisions we just need to maybe up that skill level or practice that catching a bit more whereas you could be the most skilled person in the world but if you're not making the right decisions you shouldn't be on the pitch because you're going to make the wrong decisions over and over again and you're not going to get many good goals yeah for sure yeah totally totally agree with that Duh. But I do like sort of the way you sort of analyse those games. And essentially, when I think of Australian Quidditch, certainly like what the Drop Bears plays 2016, 2018, very fast, very physical, in your face, just kind of dominating that kind of physical confrontation. And you think about the way people in Texas play Quidditch, it is very, very similar. Um, so obviously, whereas Boston, it's a lot more, so I guess Boston, Northeast, New York, that area. It's a lot more technical. It's a lot more kind of, I guess, 
there's more kind of thought behind it in many ways. Rap kind of combining the physical element with the mental element as well. So like, I that think... contrast in styles probably sort of gave them the edge. Exactly. And then I think now, moving forward, Texas Cavalry has taken that physicality from Texas and put in that thinking, that planning from the Northeast, that like slow methodicalness. And that's why they're so deadly in a lot of their games is they have that physical nature. They can run on you if they want, but then they have that really calm, really relaxed. Let's just work our way in and slowly develop the play. And that's why they're so dangerous. They've merged those two styles. Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, yeah, this is great, great um, conversation to be having kind of about the whole kind of development of tactics over time for being Quidditch. Um, super. We're going to take it back to um, back to Australia um, and sort of, I guess Club Quidditch now. Um, so after you graduated, as you mentioned, uh, you helped set up the Sydney City Serpents. So your your team, the community team in Sydney. Um, kind of how did this come about, and what would you say is the Serpents' ethos as a club? Um, so it came about because there were players from UCID and UNSW who were both sort of getting too old for their programs. Um, I think it's important that people move on from the university programs at some point to allow new players to come in um, and to get those experiences so that they can play community, right? Like, I think it's really hard to learn when you're not actually doing anything. Um, so there's this always this play of like, do you want to win games or do you want to help new players? Um, so we felt like there was a need to move on. Um, and it had actually been possibly an idea the year earlier um, I'd even like started a group chat and stuff, but we just didn't feel like we had enough players. Um, we didn't want to start a team of like eight players, you know? Um, so we we sort of put the plan in motion. It was like me, uh, Mindeep, um, Raj Kapoor, um, and then like Damien Osborne from Newcastle. Like we, we were sort of all thinking about it and Nat and Paul and stuff. Um, we're, we're all sort of discussing it. Um, and then it was basically just like, ended up bringing a lot of our friends who felt that they wanted to move on from their programs into our team. Um, and then my friend, Alex and Rico, who was playing on the UCID was our coach for that first year. Um, and it was, it was just about like trying to work it all out, but I don't know. The ethos was win, win, win for a while. Um, which I think was quite a negative in a lot of ways. Um, looking back on it, um, this is going to be a very introspective podcast. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, but, like, I think we really suffered a lot from what America does in a lot of ways, which is the people saw us as a super team and people expected us to win. And if we didn't win, we were losers, right? Like, there's there's no middle ground. Um, nowadays, there are other good teams um, and, like, people have separated a little bit. Uh, there's the Nightmares and the Valkyries, and the, there's there's more variety, right? Um, and Melbourne still hasn't given up the national championship in about six years. Um, <laughs> so it's it, it was a very, like, good environment in a lot of ways, but also quite toxic in a lot of ways. Um, we expected a lot from each other, um, and we expected this high quality of energy and this high quality of play and this high quality of... Um, being interested and in coming to training and all of that sort of stuff. 
Um, I think we have more of a better mindset now, but I think that led to a lot of people being upset when we were losing because we, because when, when someone tells you you're going to win over and over and over again, regardless of what you think, it, it, it gets ingrained in you and you start yeah, to you expect start like to you're going to win as well. Yeah. 100%. Um, and then in that first tournament, we were in snitch range with you, Sid, the program we graduated from, and they played really well and we were lucky to get out of that game. And then we were really unlucky. We well, we were unlucky to lose against the Willows in the semifinal, right? So yeah, putting the team together, I think we were slightly naive in a lot of ways um, and hadn't really thought about what bringing a lot of really experienced leaders of, of the sport together into one team, what that really meant and what that, what work really needed to be done. Like, I think if we'd spent that year, first year working on our attitudes towards the game and working on pure teamwork, no skill, no anything, I think we might've been better off and we might've been able to win a quaffle or two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think that kind of comment on team composition is really interesting because if you look at, Australian Quidditch as a whole, and kind of what I've enjoyed about kind of following Australian Quidditch from afar is that there's no like one, like obviously you've got the Manticores, but like the Manticores aren't super, super dominant, right? So you have several teams who all kind of compete with each other and they've got, I don't know, there's two or three players who are on the drop bears in that team and two or three in, in this team. Um, but there's no kind of obvious favourites. And then the Serpents came about and I looked at that and went, oh, that's a good player. That's a good player. That's another good player. And though I'm several thousand miles away, I could kind of sense there was this expectation that you guys were going to be the next big thing. You're going to stomp everybody. Um, but then, yeah, and you're kind of used to being at your club or your, your university beforehand, being, I am the big dog. I make all the, I'm the best player, I make all the right plays. I'm the captain, I'm the coach, whatever. And then stepping to this new environment, where it's like, oh, I'm now one of many great players. Oh, I'm also, there's a captain there, there's a captain, there's a coach there. Try to kind of put those egos to one side and actually make a cohesive unit is pretty hard. Yeah, it's it's hard, right? Because lots of people just turn around and say egos. But I, I personally don't think it was an ego thing. It wasn't a lack of passing. It was an overemphasis on passing. It was almost like, we all wanted to defer in a way. And at trainings, it, it, what I, these expectations like, like Damien Osborne, right? Caught the snitch in 2016. I don't need to tell him how to play. But like, if I wanted to give him advice, I think I, I really suffered a lot from, when, when you talk to less experienced players and when you talk to more experienced players, like the more experienced player knows what they did. They know what they did wrong, right? They always do. You don't need to tell them that they should have used two hands. You don't need to tell them that they should have moved here and shot at the hoop instead. They know that. They already know what they've done wrong, and you don't need to say it again. Because if you say it again, it just feels like you're digging at them over and over again, right? So that that's something that I failed at in the first two years of Serpents, was this idea that like I had to help train people by telling them what they should have done. And like... That's not true. Like, and 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 you you start transitioning over, and you go like unlucky. Like, 
I'm sure you know, like, blah, blah, blah. And you start to realize that they know exactly what they should have done. They're already thinking about how to make it better. And so it's about building that trust of, it's not like a trust of, I will pass it to you. It's a trust of, I will pass it to you when it's the right thing to do. And I trust you to pass it to me when it's the right thing to do. I don't trust you to pass it to me when it's the wrong thing to do, but I also don't trust I, I It's also not that I lack trust in you to drive all the time. You know what I mean? Like it's about figuring out your place in the team, figuring out how to talk to each other in this understanding, but respectful way, and then building that trust. And at the first time we just didn't trust each other enough to, um, do it properly. Like we just didn't play that well at Quaffle, honestly. Um, we should have played better. I mean, we lost, we lost a pool play game and we lost our finals game, uh, our semifinals game, both in snitch range. Um, almost every game Serpents has lost ever has been in snitch range. Um, I have the stats. Um, it's, <laughs> I'm we, not surprised. <laughs> I, I have a, I have a track record. I can even tell you like, yeah, yeah. I can tell you all the percentages, but, um, we we really failed in a lot of that regard and i think that mentality when you're just playing it's fine but when you're in close games mistakes and mentality really come out and when you're really desperate for that pass or when you're really desperate to score a goal or when you're really desperate to make that beat that's when you really need that trust and i think that's what we were lacking at that time okay that's that's very honest of you um <laughs> i don't know yeah. I, I i i've been in the spot too long to like tell lies over and over again like i'm just like let's <laughs> just talk about being honest let's talk about being better and move on you know like, yeah true it's, it's how we improve it's how we improve exactly. um kind of looking at your time with the serpents what would you say have been the real highlights with the team and kind of look to the future as well like what you're hoping to achieve um as well as a team like i i, I think the future is winning a quaffle obviously um but i think that's it's a very interesting situation with serpents because we have a lot of older players i'm not sure if they want to keep playing after covid and all that sort of stuff so we have to see um but we've also got like we had this kid who was like 16 who like wanted to come and play with us um he's only like he's been playing with us for two years now um he's the tallest player on the team um which is a crazy time. Um, but like only now is he going into university. So like th there are some younger players coming in, which is really good. But I think the highlights, honestly, like it's been some of the, like, because these are people I've known from the Australian team. These are people I've known from state. It, it's hanging out with friends. Like it, it, this team is really just a bunch of friends who enjoy playing board games together. And like, we had like, one of our guys hosted like a Super Bowl party back when the Eagles won. Um, and afterwards we like spent four hours watching like the Smash Brothers tournament. Like we're <laughs> not like a lot of the time people look at the serpents and think, oh, they're just a bunch of douchebag jocks. But we're actually just like, like all of our parties, like we had a party like a few months ago. The majority of it was just like board games. Like that's just who we are. And like, it's just a bunch of friends who enjoy playing Quidditch together who happen to be good. Um, also like trainings are great. Like trying to run a screening drill when it's like me, Andrew Colf, Damian Osborne, Nicholas Albanoz, like Gary Haig. And it's just like, who do you want to screen? No one. Who do you want to like, <laughs> it's, it's like huge, large bodies sprinting at you. And you're just like, this is an, an adventure. So 
it's it's just a lot of fun and a lot of friends and trainings are great. But yeah, I think we want to win, but we need to fix that mentality first. And I think we are really on a good stead to get there. We've really made some large improvements over the last two years. And yeah, so I think this will be interesting. And the fact that uh, North City Nightmares are such a good team now with some really good talent they've brought in um, will really challenge us throughout the year, which I think will be really good for us. Mm-hmm. But yeah, hopefully when we get back to playing after COVID, then uh, yeah, it all sounds pretty positive. Yeah. <laughs> so um going to shift gears now to uh, State Shield, uh, which is kind of, I guess, Australia's answer to QPL, MLQ. Yeah. Kind of that ilk of competition. Um, and so far you've played on all editions of the New South Wales Blue Tongue Wizards. Um, which is, yeah, playing against Victoria Leadbeaters and Queensland. Um, it's kind of the combination between that sort of the three yeah. main states on the east side of Australia. Um, so what's it like playing in this com- competition as opposed to Quaffle? And you know, which edition of the tournament do you say is your favourite? Um, it's obviously like a step up in level. It's definitely like the difference. It's it's the middle ground between drop bears and um, sort of club level. Um, I've always had like multiple of my teammates on the state team. Um, like I think there were like six or seven serpents in the most recent state team and like six usage players and stuff. So like lots of the players come from the same teams. Um, but it, it's very, very interesting. Like people that you are normally like foes of over and over again, you um, are instantly teammates and you just have to make it work. You know what I mean? Um, so like, like there was uh, 20, 2018, I think it was, there was like, that was a big like serpents versus you said, yeah. Um, we were toing and froing. We won, we won a game. They won a game. We won a game. They won a game. They happened to win every final um, we won every pool play game sort of thing. Um, and it was always close. It was almost always snitch range. Um, I think we we blew them out like once. Um, and then like we came back in an overtime game sort of thing. Like it was very, very close. But then like you go to the state and that was the year where like a third of the team's serpents, a third of the team as you said, I'm like playing keeper next to like Brandon and Sam and Courtney and Harry and Alex who are all used players. Like it, it was... It's just one of those things where you're like, let's put this aside and go beat up Victoria. Like, (laughs) let's just, like, unify as New South Wales, go try and win this against Victoria um, because they'd won the first two years. Um, So that's the real difference, I guess, is... And the quality of level, obviously, is higher. Um, The most... The most, like, the best moments... um, Obviously, I think New South Wales winning it for this first time is probably one of the best moments. Um... There was uh, still my favorite moment of that whole tournament was like, it was me and Harry Jones's beaters on snitch on pitch beating versus Nathan Morton and Dean Rodhouse. So that was like a wild ride, but Nathan threw the bludger at Harry, Harry like knocked it up. And then I grabbed my bludger and punched the bludger in the air over again. So it ended up <laughs> flying like half the pitch over into like their sub box. <laughs> um, and then we caught like five seconds later. Like it was just really funny that we seeing the bludger be like bump, bump, like over the top. Um, <laughs> because it's a live bludger, you can do that. Um, so there, there are moments like that which are really good, but it's definitely just a how can you make it work? 
Um, and I think Victoria had that working for the first two years really, really well. Um, and have we like really stepped above Victoria? No. Again, most of the games are in snitch range. So I think it's just about the fact that we really stepped up and we really like started working together and we got some really good new talent that's come in. Um, and yeah, so it's great now. It's like, I think we last, last time was like every game was a snitch range game or like something like that. So that's always a good time to watch when you have really high quality games that are always snitch range. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's quite interesting to hear about that dynamic that you guys have as New South Wales, obviously. So sort of during sort of the regular season, like within the different clubs, you play each other so much and it's highly competitive. It's a lot, a lot of close games. And then you've got to turn around and go, right, okay, we've got to beat these guys and kind of, yeah, as you said, make it work. Yeah, and it's like, oh, like, I, I'm, I'm assuming, like, you get this in QPL and MLQ as well. It's like, hmm, do what, like, here's my beta partner for New South Wales State. I can give him some advice, and I'm going to, but I now know that that's going to make him harder to play against in club Yeah. <laughs> like, it's this big, like, but I, but I think, thankfully, we've just gone, look, let's just all help each other. Let's just win State and then just, like, deal with everything else afterwards. Because I think it's it's so pointless trying to, like, hide information from each other. Like, it doesn't really work. Yeah, true. Plus, if you think about it as a whole, as Australia, like, these little bits of nuggets of information that you can share amongst yourselves is just going to make the whole country better. Exactly. And I think there is this there is this idea in Australian Quidditch that, like, World Cup is more important than Quapple. Um, we've won it once, we want to do it again. So anything to make other people better is a good thing. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And kind of speaking about Australia as a whole, um, kind of moving on to talking about your time within the national gov- governing body, Quidditch Australia. Um, you are the president of the organisation, um, have been for a few years now. Um, what was your motivation to take up this role alongside being a top player? Um... Honestly, one of the main things was that before me, there were a few presidents who'd only done like a year or a year and a few months. And that left this big sort of like constantly changing ideas about what they wanted to do with Quidditch. Um, For example, Nick Hurst put a lot of money into State Shield um, videoing and marketing because that's what he thought the next stage would be, right? But the president after him didn't as much. So there was, so Quidditch Australia, in my mind, was sort of going, this is our priority, no, this is our priority, no, this is our priority. And that's really hard for a governing body to handle financially and handle in terms of the players' minds. So my goal was just honestly to provide stability more than anything else. Um, am I the best best person for the job? No, by, by no means am I the best president. But my goal as the president was to get a board that know what they're doing help that board constantly move over. Like we didn't have handover documents. We didn't have those things before like I came on and made it a thing. But ultimately, honestly, out of everyone on the board, I do the least amount of work. Um, In my opinion, my goal is to be the sort of like face of Quidditch Australia and take all the blame for everything. So if anyone's like, oh, Quidditch, Quidditch Australia board has done this, I want them anger to be directed at me so that my board members can do their jobs, right? If they're dealing with complaints, they can't do their jobs. Whereas if I'm just dealing with the complaints, everyone's annoyed at me, all of that sort of stuff. Quidditch Australia has done this. Quidditch Australia has made this wrong decision. I will deal with that so that they can do their jobs. And 
that's how I see my role working. And it seems to have worked out by so far. This is my fourth year, I think, as president. Um, still not sure if I'm running next year uh, or the end of this year, but we'll see. Um, so, yeah, stability and just trying to, like, make sure the board stays consistent over a few years, has a plan, has a financial plan. And we've just applied to be a um, officially recognized sport by our national giving body. We've like um, some amazing work from the board, uh, Nicola Gertler and Jamie and a few other people really putting a lot of work to that. So that's been a really good step that we've been able to do in COVID when basically we can't do anything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It sounds like you've kind of come into it with the right kinds of intentions and I mean, if we're going to get political here, like you look sure, at, let's do it. <laughs> you look at like certain certain leaders and certain U.S. presidents or like prime ministers and things, and they've had like this kind of approach, sort of going, right, I'm not necessarily the best person to lead this. I'm not going to make all of these big important decisions. Now I'm going to delegate because there's plenty of smart minds around me. I'm going to use the people I have at my yeah, sort of at my service kind of people I've got to help disposal. me yeah <laughs> to yeah to get the most out of them and collectively yeah sort of be responsible for what the organization does and I think in a volunteering organization that's how you should be doing it right like I don't have time to spend 20 hours a week on Quidditch like Quidditch like management in terms of the, the NGB most people don't but if you have seven people doing five hours a week that's great. Like you, you share the job. And like, I, I, if someone needs help, I help out. But like, ultimately it's about bringing on smart people who are good at what they're doing. For example, bringing AJ into marketing. Um, whoever doesn't know Ajantha Abbey is it's a crime. He's a genius. Um, he is great with marketing. And we literally just went here, AJ, do whatever you want. <laughs> and he ran with it and he's great. And he's now in the UK. Um, so yeah. now you get him. I think with, uh, well, certainly with Total Quidditch, and we, we post a lot of photos on the page. I think AJ is responsible for a good 80% of them. So yep. big shout out to AJ. He's great fantastic. Ed great editor, great guy, very good on deadlines, very good ideas. Just just an awesome guy. And you said Quidditch alum. <laughs> the main thing. The main thing, <laughs> most important thing. <laughs> exactly. So kind of during your time as president of Quidditch Australia, kind of what have you enjoyed most about the role and kind of what have you found most challenging with it as well? I think by far the most challenging is when like something negative happens with a player that you're really good friends with. And it's not like my opinion changes of them, but it's like if you have to give them a punishment and you're like, especially if like... um you personally disagree with the decision, right? Like, I, I really hate it. I really, really hate it. If you're on a board and the board votes and it's like three three to two or like four to three and you lose and you turn around to that person and be like, I disagreed with this decision. I don't think it should have been like this, but the board voted. No. Nah. The board voted. You, you don't have to be like, I voted for you, but you just don't say who you what you voted for, you know? Like, you're a part of the board. The board is an entity and as part of the board you have to support what the board does even if they make a decision that doesn't quite that you don't quite agree with it's not fair to throw under other people under the bus but it's really hard when 
you're giving a punishment to someone who you're really good friends with and you disagree with the decision. Um, that's a really, really hard thing, but unfortunately it's part of the part of the game. You got to do it. Um, they didn't elect me here because I'm their friend. I got elected to do a job. Um, in terms of the good things, I just really like how Quidditch Australia is running right now. I like that we have people willing to volunteer for things. Um, there's always more. Please come volunteer. Uh, the more the merrier. Um, small plug. But um, <laughs> I think it's running pretty well. We've dealt with COVID pretty decently. Um, I just like the day-to-day -day running of it, like the hum of it. Um, when you like log on to... We, we run everything through Slack. Um, when you log on to Slack and you check everything and everything's fine, good day, you know? Um, sometimes it's not a good day and people will be freaking out about something and that's fine, you deal with it. But I really enjoy just like the hubbub of people doing things and being able to see what's happening and stuff like that. Okay. So yeah, quite quite a simple pleasure that everything, as you said, is sustainable and everything's working as you want. I'm a, I'm a very simple person. My like life goal is to live in a small place where like i can go down to my local baker and he knows my local order that's my goal <laughs> in life. like i don't <laughs> i don't need a lot of complex stuff like the simple hubbub everything's going well perfect uh-huh and yeah as you mentioned kind of that tricky kind of personal relationship which i think a lot of people struggle with in quidditch whether it's i don't know a player and a coach or a referee or whatever and because so many people know each other so to speak, whether it's like good mates or i don't know someone you've played even just like a fancy tournament with like someone you know but then having to yeah as you said like go i've been elected to do this job in this current moment i'm doing that job and behaving professionally and some people understand that and some people don't necessarily so i can see why that's pretty difficult yeah, for anyone who's struggling with that, just try to present yourself as a part of the board in that circumstance. Be very clear that, like, you're talking to them as part of the board, not as yourself. Um, that's what I found really good. Like, I had to pull aside a player and be like, hey, this is board matters. Like, I'm I'm talking to you on behalf of the board. This is what our decision was. I'm sorry that you're unhappy, but this is what we've decided on. And, like, as long as you, like, I, I found separating myself from it like i'm not just like hey man want to go like chat um and just like make it seem really like unofficial like friendly while dealing with board stuff it, it's really hard but if you're just official about it, be like hi can we have a board conversation just over here pull them aside tell them what's happening be be, be like not like stern about it but like serious enough that they know it's serious and that it's not like a laughing matter um and that will help you be presented as part of the board as opposed to yourself. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's so, uh, the thing. Transparency, honesty, best policy. 100%. <laughs> Super. Um, we're going to move on to the mailbag section of the episode now. Um, it's Go another long it. one from us, but uh, Sorry. Hope, everyone, <laughs> hope everyone's enjoyed what <laughs> Luke's had to say. I, I certainly have. Um, yeah, it's all been very interesting to hear about. Um, so these questions have been sent in. Uh, by uh various people um <laughs> some people who follow the page make sure you give that a like you'll see more content um some people from a lot of questions coming from fellow australians um tons classic, of questions. this is this could be good um the first one which i think is a bit of a controversial one um it's come from, it comes from matt bateman how does it feel 
that the best beater on the drop bears is actually a kiwi? Uh, look, yes, I am from New Zealand. Um, I People did ask me to play for the New Zealand just team. Just in case um, anyone wasn't aware. It's <laughs> just in case. Um, revelation so, for some people. It's not a big secret, but um, yes, you may not know. <laughs> uh, look, I like to think of myself as the best beater in the Australian team. Will I say that openly that I am? No, because I think each person is better in a certain circumstance. Certain circumstance. I think Nathan's really good in certain situations. Denny's incredible in situations. And so is Dean. James Williams played some beta. Um, Nicholas, Nicholas Allen, Leslie Fox. Like, they're all such good players in lots of situations. Um, do I think I'm the best? Yes. But am I categorically <laughs> the best? I don't know if that is how I would say it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, I think Matt wants to draw attention to the the New, the New Zealander in you as a, a fellow New Zealander himself. That's fair. Um, <laughs> I sort of find it very funny as a New Zealander that I'm on the Australian team. But you know, I think I am fulfilling the Australian heritage of stealing New Zealand things and calling it their own. I think it's <laughs> it's a constant tradition. Farlap, Pavlova, Luke Derrick. You know, it all just files into one sentence. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Um, this next question. Um, what do you say is the strongest part of your play? Or what makes you great as a player? I think in Quidditch, a lot of the time, there's so many decisions to make. And instead of soccer, a lot of the time, where there's like a few different variables because there's only one ball. When you have four balls, the variables multiply on top of each other, right? So when you come into the sport, you don't know what the best decision is. And so that's why it's so hard to break into that upper echelon of beaters because you don't have the experience of those decisions. So I think, honestly, it's the fact that I've made so many mistakes that I've learned from those mistakes and don't make them as much much anymore. That's it. It's the fact that I've played so long and people like Max, Michael Duquette, Cole, Augie, like all of those amazing players are probably the same in a lot of ways. They've made those decisions so many times that they know what is the right and wrong decision more in that situation. That's why I tell new players, no matter what, don't do nothing. Because if you're doing nothing, you're not learning. If you do something and it doesn't work, that's fine because you can learn from that situation. If you're just standing there with a the, with the bludger and literally not doing anything, what's the point? You, you, you don't learn from any situation. So do stuff, learn from it. That's that's the only reason why I'm up so high is because I've been here for this long and I've made that many mistakes. Yeah, that's a great piece of advice. Um, so we've got this question coming in from Andrew Kolf. It says, um, if flavoured brooms ever became a thing, can we expect a return of the broom in mouth back to hoops? Uh, the answer is yes. Um, <laughs> the best flavour for a broom, though, I don't know, because, like, does it does it pick up the flavour from the dirt as well? That's the real question. Or is it just, like, a flavour on its own that becomes untouched? I don't know. I mean, I've got a flavoured mouth guard, um, which is quite oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, it's like a sort of, like, a lemon taste in your mouth. So maybe it'd be a bit like that. Yeah, like a like a, like a a hint of it. Um, I actually stole that move from Tony, um, Tony Rodriguez. Um, the, like, classic West... Um, LA Guardians, Gambits um, player who I saw do it and I thought it was cool. Um, and then I did it a few times and I happened to do it. Like, I think that photo that that is like classic me is, I think that was like the one time I did it at that World Cup. 
maybe it was like the second time. It it was it was actually after the first yellow card that led to the red card in the Ireland game. That's when <laughs> that photo was. Um, I got the second yellow card like twenty seconds afterwards. So, <laughs> is it actually faster? I don't think so. I think it's actually slower. Um, <laughs> I have come to think about it. So, don't try it. But like, if they're flavored, probably yeah. Hmm. The Andrew's got a second question here. In twenty-five words or less, how would you describe the Luke Derrick experience? <laughs> I actually like you. You won't see this on camera, but my friends made a the Luke Derrick experience poster as a joke. Wow, this is incredible. Um, yeah, <laughs> there's like credits down the bottom and stuff. I've had this for years, um, but that's hilarious, right? Um, it was for like a birthday present. Uh-huh. Um, what is the Luke Derrick experience? Ah, uh, I don't know. Like, <laughs> uh, me and Gary, uh, I, 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 I won't count the words. I'll just try and give it short. Um, for a while, it was just win, win, win at all costs. Um, there's more introspection now, but I feel like it's no longer <laughs> the Luke Derrick experience. So maybe the Luke Derrick experience was just win, 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 no matter what. Um, there was, there's a song that says win, 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 no matter what, um, uh, which is a pretty good song. So maybe that's the Luke Derrick experience, that song in, in, in itself. Maybe it's that, or just look at the poster, beat yourself, then the world. <laughs> yeah, I find that very so funny. <laughs> <laughs> Get your mind right and then beat the world. <laughs> brilliant brilliant um this one from from harry jones what is what is your power ranking of all spyro ability upgrades um for those who don't know i stream spyro on tuesday nights it's a great time um <laughs> <laughs> uh if we're talking the gate upgrades you're probably talking like flight first and then probably like the supercharge because it can get you more places and then you're ranking like the like lava guard which means you can't be damaged by lava or like acid guard like right at the bottom because they're super niche and in the middle you've probably got the like um the super firepower we can shoot shoot, like fireballs out of your mouth but flight's got to be top it's so much easier there we go for any spyro players out there you've heard it (laughs) heard it from luke here that that's that's exactly what you need from the upgrade i haven't played spyro in years it's so uh, good. The reignited trilogy that. is amazing. It's it's exactly <laughs> the same game. It's just better graphics. Uh-huh. Um, got a, a serious one. So I guess time to put the Quidditch Australia hat back on. Um, right. What can Australian Quidditch do in a post-COVID world to help the long-term sustainability of the game in Australia? Honestly, I think New South Wales has done a good job in rooting our recruitment in universities. I think university recruitment is incredibly incredibly beneficial i think america's seen that and i think uk has seen that where if you build these university programs they will lead to a lot of players because when people are coming into university they want to find something fun they want to do something weird they want to find friends and quidditch is a great place for that right so i think we need to focus on those like grassroots university teams and keep building those because if they keep going, then there will be players for the community team. You know what? Like people will graduate and will want to keep playing in some regard. Um, and that's that's one of the reasons why I think Victoria is currently losing players 
quicker than New South Wales is, is because New South Wales is still funded by those university teams. Like community teams will keep having players because they need to go somewhere, you know, but Victoria was a very community team focused. And that's why like the Melbourne Manticles are starting to move into um, starting to help La Trobe University, University of Melbourne build a team. And I think that's a great way to do it. Um, so start with there and then the players will come. Ultimately, it's just getting back to tournaments, though. Like, if we can all start playing Quidditch, then that'll be better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good answer there. Um, so we've got a few more questions left here. Sure. Uh, this one from James Williams. Um, ask, which player uh, have you had the best connection with on pitch? A, as a beater, and B, as a bottle player? Oh, man. Um... As a quaffle player, it's probably AJ or Brandon Frizen. Um, AJ, I went through like a literal full pitch, full pitch alley oop to him. Um, and he, I, I like realized like a few years into my journey in terms of Quidditch, like what my tells were in terms of when I was going to like move and when I was going to, and like I told AJ this, like trying to help him. And he's like, oh, I've already known that for like a year. Like, he already knew what my tells were before I knew what they were because he was, <laughs> like, analysing when I would go so that he could catch things. Um, and Brandon Frizen is just hilarious to throw to because you're throwing to a man who is, like, incredibly fast and incredibly strong. So you're, like... Like, I was throwing him alley-oops one, mid, one like, um, mid-season tournament and it was just hilariously funny because um, he's so used to, like, driving and doing everything himself. So when I can throw him the ball, that's just a lot of fun. Um, in terms of beta, like, I think I can't get past Nat in terms of she's, like, Natalie Astolosh, two-time two time actual drop bear, three-time selected drop bear for the 2020 team. Um, she just started knowing me so well that it was super, super easy to deal with in terms of, like, she knew when to call me out for my crap because sometimes I'm bad at communicating. Um, and, like... Um, she'd almost know where I needed to be before I needed to be. And so she would be able to plug those holes really well because we played with each other for like seven or eight years. Um, also, James Williams is a lot of fun as a beta partner. Um, but that's also because James just listens to whatever I say and does it. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't like mind that either. But yeah, I think Nat by far is the best. Um, Hayley Klontz as well is a new beta sort of in the last few years in Australia. Um, she got selected to the 2020 team as well. Um, our chemistry on pitch is quite good as well um, in terms of serpents. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, moving on to our last question. Uh, I, guess it's, I guess it's two questions. Um, I believe this has come from the Sydney City Serpents account. So <laughs> finishing off. <laughs> It's like a, a home ground question here. I did not write these, just to be clear. <laughs> Definitely not. Um, so the first one, what's the most overused joke in Quidditch? Oh, the the you can't do that thing? Get over it. <laughs> do, do you guys have that in the UK? Ask the American people, isn't it? It's like, duh, 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 duh. You yeah, can't it's, do that, yeah. Like, like, that was cool, like, five years ago. Like, just stop. <laughs> um, Every time it comes up again, I'm just like, like we get it. They're being carded. Like <laughs> they know they can't do that. Um, uh, it, it's one of those things that was like cool for a little bit, and now is like exhausting. Um, personally, you can do it if you want, but like I'm, I'm not a fan. 
Okay. And then our, our final question. Um, this one. What's been your favourite game slash tournament to play at? Now, I'm assuming we're talking 2016 World Cup. Like, we've, we've just got to oh, remove that from the thinking, though, right? Like, otherwise, yeah. it's not like Take a... That out. Like, we know that's number one. What's number two? Oh, man. Um, One of my favourite games has to be the 72-minute game we played, um, which was Usid versus Muggles 2016, like, Mud Bash tournament, which is like a middle-of-the-year uh, middle tournament for us. Um, That's not, like, league play. Um. And it was us versus them and Nathan and Nicola Gertler were on that team. Um, And we were like out of range the whole time. But like one thing I told you, Sid, when I was there was we never, we never catch the snitch to lose. Like we are never doing that. I don't care how long the game is. We are never like choosing to lose. The team has to beat us. Um, And so it just kept going. Um, I, like, played keeper for the first, like, 10 minutes, had a sub, and then my keeper sub injured himself. Like, he, like, tripped on the... Because we were playing on, like, um, artificial turf. And he, like, tripped and, like, skinned his knee, like, really badly or did his ankle or something. So I played the rest of the game. Um, And it was this balance of, like, Nathan Morton trying to stay in his beta to, like, stop our drives, but but no one else... But he needed to catch the snitch. So he'd, like, (laughs) sub into Seeker, and then we'd score, and then he'd come back in his beta... So we at this time that Snitch came on at like 18 minutes, we were down 60 points. It took us like 60 minutes like to come back into range and then we caught to win. Like it was like the most ridiculous comeback. It literally took 72 minutes. One of my teammates subbed on for an injury in the wrong position at 48 minutes. And then he <laughs> played a 24 minute game um, is how like you can think about it. Um, but then we had to play the next game in like 10 minutes and we were all destroyed. So that has to be like one of the most like memorable games. Um, that isn't just like memorable because we won. You know what I mean? Like th- there are games that are memorable because you win them. And then there are games that are memorable because like it was ridiculous. That's one of the most ridiculous ones. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's quite an entertaining answer there. Duh. Yeah, certainly uh, one you, you won't forget easily. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I will never forget that game. It was exhausting. Like, the next day, I literally could not get out of bed. I had to, like, roll out of bed. I was exhausted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's fantastic. Um, we're gonna, we're gonna wrap things up there. Um, yeah, yeah, this is another long episode for us, but <laughs> I, I don't know about you, Luke, but I've had a lot of fun. Like, this has been really, really good. I've had uh, a lot of fun, too. Sorry for <laughs> the longness. Um, you could have stopped me at any point, but as I told you, I will talk about Quidditch till the cows come home. So, oh yeah, likewise, likewise. <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been so great to hear about everything that you've done, kind of both as a player and you know, as a in like leadership roles and everything like that. And yeah, just how you're both like a student of the game, so to speak, and also just a fan. Like you really enjoy what you've done. So yeah, it's been great. So thank you very much for your time. No worries at all. Thank you very much for having me. Keep doing what you're doing. This podcast is good. Fantastic. You're welcome. Is there anything before we go that you'd like to plug in terms of Quidditch Australia or are you good on that front? Um, well, nothing's really happening here. Um, <laughs> so, no. But, like, watch the games that get uploaded. They're fun. Like, are they MLQ? No. But they're still a lot of fun and there's still some really, really good players. So might as well come and watch.
there you go. So if you're locked out Australia right now, got nothing better to do, watch some film, get better at Quidditch, and then absolutely storm it when you get back to playing. Exactly. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so we hope you, the listeners, have enjoyed this episode as much as we have. Um, if you want to stay up to date with future episodes of the Total Quidditch podcast, please give the Total Quidditch Facebook page a like. Uh, we'll be announcing upcoming guests on there and, of course, giving you a chance to send in more of your mailbag questions, which I think this probably be my favourite mailbag we've had so far. Like some really good questions. So thank you for everyone sending those in. Um, until next time, keep yourself safe and live the game. Goodbye. Bye.